two-ton hammer. Dock me by the pound. I'm a hard-work driving man. Six foot solid from the ground. Hello. Hello, everybody. Um, it's time for another edition of the Director's Club Podcast. This is episode 95. My name is Jim Laskowski. Cool, huh? And I am stoked beyond belief to welcome back to the show one of my favorite people to talk movies with. He's a voice you've probably heard more than any other guest, possibly. And that voice belongs to Bill Ackerman. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> um, yeah, anytime. You're you're always welcome. Yes. You're you're pretty much. I've uh, I've decided to maybe I should make this uh, like a formal announcement to make you the festival correspondent of the Directors Club podcast. Well, I, uh, I sent you business cards. I made you business cards. That is. Well, I I uh, I will. Take up the uh, the task and uh, do my best with it. I'm going to New York Film Festival in a couple of weeks, but I'm missing some of the key films, so I'm already like, like you know, kind of a halfway good or bad. <laughs> of course, well, at some at, at some year, maybe it'll be next year or the year after. We'll have to figure out a way if we can even get press credentials because I know even, um, I don't know if it's through Twitch, but I, I I'm not sure, but maybe I, I know Kurt Halfyard gets press credentials for TIFF, yeah. and I'm like, well, if we can figure out a way to do that, and you're willing to do the traveling, I would love it if you can go to TIFF next year and cover it for the show. I would love it. I mean, we're missing it right now, and it's I know it's making me sad. <laughs> it is. There's there's some good there's some good titles coming out. Um, it's possible that I'll have Eric Childress come on the show and talk about it. We'll see. But um, yeah, I, for this, I'll, I'll do an episode with you uh, after I'm back from New York Film Festival. I am seeing Carol and uh, Bridge of Spies, and I I think maybe like fourteen, fifteen films total. So, uh, oh, Thomas Anderson's new film I'm seeing, and uh, yeah, that's got to be shocking to some people who probably don't even know that's in existence to hear the words Paul Thomas Anderson's new film. Um, yes, it's actually happening. Uh, a documentary um, on Johnny Greenwood visiting what country? I forget. I forget now, too. Uh, that's okay. But that's cool. <laughs> uh, once people hear just Paul Thomas Anderson documentary, they're, they're going to be excited. So yeah. I'm excited for you to see that. Yeah, I, I will report back. Uh, I'm taking notes already. Like uh, for the, I'm going to do a blog on it, too. So, uh, yeah, it'll be fun. Um, it'll probably be an interesting episode we recorded it'll be a bonus episode of course where i'll talk about the films i saw at pickwick um depending on the timing we'll see if it's you know what what the timing will be because i've got uh plans for two horror themed directors for october and then we'll probably do our festival coverage later that month we'll see we'll see if we can figure out a good time for it so anyway two months ago I saw a film for the first time called Blue Collar, and I flipped the fuck out. I started doing cartwheels. I was dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie. Uh, I called the president. I, I went nuts. Um, I sent a message to Bill saying, hey, I want to do Paul Schrader. Uh, well, I mean, I want to talk about his work on the podcast. I don't actually want to have sex with Paul Schrader. Yeah, um, that could be tricky. Yeah, so... Luckily, you said yes. I will join you in this endeavor, Jim. Oh, that yeah. was your. That was exactly what you said. <laughs> so we packed our picnic baskets and settled in for some binge viewing. 
And as always, I I couldn't get to everything, but I believe Bill once again has beat me by a country mile. I've I've actually just finished today watching the um, he did a music video for Bob Dylan in the eighties, uh, <laughs> which was the one thing I had left to watch that wasn't like a student film or something. But I yeah I did watch or rewatch uh, every uh, credit he has as either a screenwriter or director. Uh, oh. Although I think he did some uncredited work on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and I did not rewatch that. Whoa, I did not know that at all. Yeah, yeah. His version huh. of it, um, his version of it was, I guess, uh, based on, is it St. Peter? But, like, he had the idea, or is it St. Paul? I, I think it might be St. Paul. But he had the idea of like the story being about a man who was in the, working for the government and his job was essentially to discredit people who had seen UFOs uh, and debunk, debunk their theories. But then he has his own encounter with aliens and becomes obsessive about it and goes back to the government saying he's going to blow this wide open. And they say, well, look, we'll give you full funding to research this, you know, and try to communicate with aliens by yourself if you keep it secret. So he just works on it for like 15 years. Um, and then ultimately comes to realize that the way to communicate with aliens is like through an implant or something like that. Oh. It, it, it was, but it was like a more intellectual kind of guilt ridden kind of Paul Schrader take on the material and Spielberg hated it. And, uh, even had Schrader kind of declined his points on the finished film, which would have probably paid, uh, <laughs> paid for a lot of things in Schrader's personal life if he had been accredited screenwriter on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But, uh. That would have been weird. I bet Harvey Keitel shows up in the spaceship and Richard Dreyfuss shoots him. Um, that might have been an awkward ending. Yeah. Ugh. He is Paul Schrader. He makes lots of movies. He is Paul Schrader portraying self-destruction. He is Paul Schrader. He wrote Taxi Driver. He is Paul Schrader directed lots of films. He made Affliction Hardcore, kept people blue collar, American Jingle, oh, the walker. He's a really great guy, with some darkness inside, you should try to see Light Sleeper. He is Paul Schrader, he makes lots of movies, he is Paul Schrader, you should watch him that mountain. Schrader has uh, an interesting layer added to his work that will probably touch upon because he grew up in a town where I lived for a year and a half. And that is of course the snowiest city I've lived in, in the history of my life anyway, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. So the thing about his work that resonates with me the most is pretty much the fact that he loves characters that experience existential struggle and self-destruction he focuses on people that exist on the outside looking in, and those are always compelling characters to me. Um, and you can tell that there is a lot of, uh, you know, um, personal feelings put into characters like Travis Bickle. Yeah. There's no doubt that both Scorsese and Schrader know what that kind of loneliness is like. So. Yeah, well, that's... It comes from a real place, that, I guess. That screenplay for Taxi Driver, I think, is the best example of his uh, stated idea of uh, screenwriting as therapy. Yeah. Uh, he works out a lot of his own demons. He used to do all the screenplays drunk. 
Um, he, he used to get really drunk and write them late at night and then edit them sober in the, uh, the next day. But so they have wow. that kind of, and I forget at what point he stopped doing that probably sometime in the eighties, but he, uh, so he, he felt like, I guess more free and uninhibited when he was intoxicated as a writer. But yeah, something like taxi driver is, is the most naked example of that, you know, real life alienation and loneliness and suicidal despair that he was going through in his own life at the time. Um, clearly. Yeah. I, I, I it's interesting that he, I don't know if we, we could go into the idea of him as a, uh, the Dutch Calvinist upbringing and not being exposed to any cinema until he was, I think, 17 years old. Um, what mm. he has said about that is that he has no coming of age with movies, like no adolescent uh, connection to Disney or to, uh, you know, the, the same kind of uh, Westerns and things that, uh, you know, his contemporaries grew up with. Like he has no, he has no like teenage history with it essentially um yeah he was severely repressed yeah. by his uh i don't know if it, i guess it was equally his parents but mostly i've read things that his father uh was very 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 um cruel and uh in, <laughs> just really controlling yeah. of the things that he could do and see at the time yeah well both of his parents were i think his mother also really kind of you know pushed the idea of like you know hell and damnation and in a way it's it's similar to uh another filmmaker that you've already covered on the podcast who just passed away wes craven uh also came from a very strict religious background and didn't see any movies until he was an adult um and like and then like their id is like completely released yeah they, once they, they start making movies they find bergman they find pornography and they get crazy you know <laughs> <laughs> don't we all yeah yeah, but it's yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, and, but he he went straight from exposure to cinema to Bergman. I mean, almost right away because I think he started going to Bergman films in Grand Rapids. I think because uh, there was a sexploitation theater that was booking Bergman films out of desperation, and so he started going right into those because those were marketed for their sexiness. A lot of you know classic foreign films of that of that period were, and so I think he went right in. It, you know, with the intellectual art cinema from the beginning. I mean, he, he also got into things like film noir and Peck and Paw and all that, but he he jumped right into the adult side of the pool with in terms of movies, and you can kind of maybe feel that, like, there's not, like, a lot of light escapist films on the resume with him. Like, he, he goes for heavy stuff. <laughs> he does. Yeah. You know, and there's an authenticity to that and a rawness to it that's kind of... um it's not that, it's not in a way that like oh my god I have to take a shower after watching Paul Schrader's movies, but it does um, tap into something primal and weird and something that you don't necessarily acknowledge in your day to day life. But I imagine like almost in a, this is kind of a weird analogy, but in like a, in a world of Panera Breads, mm -hmm. he might be that like bakery owner that you go to. Because he makes that special loaf of bread without preservatives that you can count on to be authentic and delicious. Like, I just, like, I think he's a real, genuine guy who puts everything on the table and he makes movies the way he wants to make them. Unless, of course, there's studio interference, which we'll get to, of course. Sure. But um, he has an insane work ethic. He's He's been making a lot of movies, even if a lot of them take a long time to come into fruition. 
based on like I even heard that Affliction took a long time to happen. Two because- years. Well, yeah, it, it would. Uh, it, it was shot in uh, I think like early '97, and then played a festival. It played Venice, uh, and it did kind of mediocre reaction in Venice, and then it just kind of sat on the shelf until late 98 and then probably got into semi-wide release in early 99 so yeah it was a long (laughs) a long road for affliction oh even longer and to get into production because it took a long time to negotiate nick nolte's salary apparently yeah because Willem defoe was like uh when are we gonna make that movie i really want to make that movie and uh apparently nolte was hanging them up and you know leaving them out to dry i was like oh that's crazy to think about but um yeah you know i i gotta say that uh, i mean we're gonna try our best to go in order um it's just interesting like to think of his career as a whole when you look when you look at it uh i just i mean he's made great films clearly he's made train wrecks and he's made you know even a recent one that's obviously studio interference and involvement led to both Nicolas Cage and Schrader disowning the film. And I, I mean, the, he, and he's, and he, I was listening to, um, I, th- I want to say it was a projection booth or it may have been another interview, but he mentioned too, he's, he's had a couple of movies on the back burner, um, including another one, I guess, with Brett Easton Ellis that never came into, I, I don't even know. I think he think he said he even finished it, but it just, because of the studio going under, it's just like sitting somewhere. I forgot what it was called. Oh, uh, the Jesuit is making yeah, a film, and that's, that's actually a screenplay he wrote that another filmmaker made. I can't remember off the top oh, of my head. Oh, okay, it. okay. But it sounds kind of like a down and dirty crime film, not like a uh, not like a uh, searching existentialist kind of drama. Um, Interesting. It's funny because his first screenplay was uh, the, the Yakuza, with uh, co-written with his brother Leonard, and that one was meant to be like a down and dirty kind of uh, Japanese gangster picture. And they sold it for a lot of money, but then Sidney Pollack brought in Robert Town to rewrite it. So it huh. has like this weird, like you would almost think that the artier elements are are. Did you mean Sidney Lumet? No, Sidney Pollack. Oh, I thought Sidney Lumet did that one for some. No, reason. yeah, it was. Uh, uh, Sidney Pollack made it. I forget it was right before or after the way we were. Uh, it was like early, like oh, weird. like seventy four. Um, it's an interesting odd film, but it's. Uh, I think it would have probably been a more straightforward kind of violent action film had uh, it not been rewritten. Um, it just sounds like something Lumet might have done. Maybe that's why I was just kind of like. Thinking about uh, you know Schrader's earliest work, I know he collaborated a lot with his brother. Yeah, early on. yeah. Um, it's funny. Um, I mean, if you look over the course of a lot of his scripts, I mean, si- sibling tensions factor into several sure. of them. And I guess they had like a kind of uh, kind of rocky relationship because Paul Schrader was a very ambitious uh, young man, and. Uh, you know, took full screenplay credit for the the Yakuza, even though they co-wrote it, and hmm. did, did things that were like a little bit kind of questionable with with his brother. And it's funny because uh, Leonard Schrader got an Oscar nomination, which Paul Schrader has never been nominated for an Oscar, which is crazy to me. What? <laughs> um, no nomination for Taxi Driver. Nope, not for Taxi Driver, or Raging Bull, or any of them. Oh wow! Um, but Leonard Schrader got one for Kiss of the Spider Woman, which. <laughs> Must have felt like sweet revenge. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was the same year that they did Mishima together, but I guess, uh, <laughs> yeah. Which, it's funny, well, his brother has the Japanese connection because he, li- he lived in Japan, and so the, the most blatantly Japanese-influenced films uh, are the uh, the ones he wrote with, uh, with Leonard Schrader. Yeah, and I know Schrader's a fan of Ozu. Um, mm-hmm. Clearly, you cannot watch things like Light Sleeper, American Gigolo, um, and not automatically think of pickpocket yeah yeah uh, so brisson is a big influence for him yeah what's funny with it, in terms of like the visual style of paul schrader it, he's got like a couple of touchstones that he keeps going back to whether it's uh Berlucci's conformist or uh pickpocket uh oh yeah conformist too yeah and call. the searchers he quotes both story-wise and visually sometimes um uh, Antonioni's Le Eclise also, but like he, there's like certain films I know that he rewatches as he's getting ready to shoot a film. That he, so if there's like a consistency in terms of the the visual style, it's it, it's it's Schrader, the old film critic, you know, and still a film critic. He still writes pieces for Film Comment, uh, going back to his you know you know world index of uh, you know visual influences that he likes to go back to. Um, and his uh, well-written defense of Lindsay Lohan, of course. Yes, well, we which uh, I'm, which I'm all for. I I will, you know, say up front, I'm I'm actually a fan of Lindsay Lohan, even though her roles as of late have been subpar, of course. Yeah. Um, but it's just interesting. We'll get to the canyons too. Sure. But I'm just like, I really liked reading a couple of things that he's written recently. Um, about the making of canyons. I think even somebody wrote a really long article that I couldn't even finish about this is what it's like when you work with Lindsay Lohan on the canyons. I don't know who wrote it. It might have been for The Hollywood Reporter or oh, something like that. Oh, it might have been the New York Times piece. Oh, yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. Which was crazy long and scary And, and, to and read. really uh, negatively impacted how... I mean we can get into whether or not that film works at all or not, but it definitely, it set the stage for how that film was received in a very gossip column kind of way. Yeah. I can see how. Yeah. Cause I, that came out even before I saw the, for better, or for worse, I was at the world premiere screening <laughs> of the canyons and, uh, yeah, that, that piece was already out. So there was already talk that, you know, this could be, this could be a train wreck, you know, when, uh, before it even was shown to an audience. It actually got shut shut down by both. Uh, was it Sundance and South by Southwest both turned it down? <laughs> I can see why, <laughs> but um, you know, going back to the beginning, of course, yeah. I have to say, blue collar. Um, I I also I, I got to start too because early on, you know, in my formative years, I mean, probably even before that, like I. As a kid, mm-hmm. I was a huge Richard Pryor fan. Mm. Um, my dad, you know, he exposed me to a lot of uh, comedy albums, as I mentioned uh, on the David Wayne episode. You know, he, he he definitely played Steve Martin quite a bit because Steve Martin wasn't necessarily blue. He no. just did sort of surrealist, absurdist comedy that was just kind of odd, whereas obviously <laughs> Richard Pryor was pretty much blue uh, nonstop. Hmm. And, you know, I would just, I would just peek in and, you know, see some comedy films of his and hear some of his records. Uh, and I just loved his energy. Uh, and oddly enough, this is, this is just kind of a weird thing to, to, to bring up in context of something like blue collar, but the toy, Hmm. I saw that as a kid and I had no, I had no 
perception of racial tension and slavery and all the th- like I just saw this goofy movie with Richard Pryor as a as a toy for a kid and um or you know almost like as a as a friend for for the for the lonely boy yeah and I thought to myself like you know what? I wouldn't mind having Richard Pryor as my friend. Yeah, I actually had the <laughs> same reaction. I, I also saw it as a kid in the theater when it came out, the toy. I've not seen it since then. I have no memory of it, but I don't remember having the kind of offended reaction that I, I later would find, yeah. you know, critically that, that it had received. I think I just it's, saw it as like, you know, what, at that age where you're like watching films very uncritically. <laughs> it is a terrible movie. Yeah. Um, and... I I just can't believe Richard Pryor signed on to do it. I don't know if it was like sold to him as something different, and he just kind of like went for it. Yeah. But at, he he is you know obviously I knew him more as a comedic presence through and through, and uh, eventually you know it, it kind of devolved into stuff like see no evil, hear no evil. But watching him in Blue Collar was kind of like a revelation. I I obviously known that he's done dramatic work in the seventies and uh he's you know gave, given some really great performances and even something like his autobiography I'd seen kind of at a too young of an age uh Jojo Dancer yeah, yeah. Your Life is Calling. Um so I, I'm aware of Richard Pryor as something other than a you know laugh out loud uh comedian of sorts. But this um this role in Blue Collar sort of uh really uh struck a chord for me and Having just watched uh, for the Larry Cohn episode Bone mm-hmm. with Yafet Koto, oh, yeah. It, yeah, it almost just seemed like the best of both worlds for me. And then ha- you know having Harvey Keitel in the mix as well, it was like one of the best ensembles. There is a brilliant, um, you know, sort of still three shot of them sitting on a couch, delivering like each of them sort of delivering um, monologues and just talking about how hard it is to get by in life that uh i think is just awesome like it's one of the best shots and yet it's just one camera pointed at three guys and i think the reason why it was shot that way and i think it was actually the last shot that they shot they not, those three guys did not get along at all no during shooting no well they were all they all felt like that the uh that they had been tricked because they were not really led to believe it was an ensemble they were led to believe that they were kind of the lead and yeah and uh they all kind of felt a little kind of a little bit paranoid that they were kind of getting uh you know not not getting enough uh of the spotlight i guess um yeah there was a lot of resentment going around and a lot of cocaine um yeah well, so you can't work with any of them ever again even harvey Keitel. i mean outside of the uh, last temptation of christ um you know yeah and that's yeah, more indirectly it, it, I mean that that when you when you watch Blue Collar and you see that shot of them on the couch, um, I believe that right after that that there's a cut there. Right after that shot is done, is Richard Pryor getting up, not saying a word to anybody on set, not saying goodbye, not saying one word. He literally just got up off that couch, got into his car, drove off, and that was the end of the shoot. Well, like he didn't say a word to anybody after he said his lines. What's funny, because Schrader, Schrader was like a noteworthy screenwriter. Like he'd already had uh, De Palma's Obsession. He had had Taxi Driver, of course. He had Rolling Thunder. Um, he had Yakuza. And so he he went into Blue Collar kind of the way like maybe Charlie Kaufman went into 
Synecdoche, New York. Like he was already like a recognized voice yeah. as a writer, so he was able. But to he get... wanted control too, yeah, of his creative vision. Well, but the thing is, is that he was still like very inexperienced. Like he was coming at it from more, uh, maybe more of an academic side of it, and dealing with like the the big personalities of movie star actors. You know the. Uh, the first couple of films were really tough because, I mean, he had kind of a breakdown making Blue Collar because of the constant tensions with the, with the leads. And then Hardcore also, George C. Scott made him promise to never direct again. Uh, if, <laughs> you, and Paul Schrader agreed to it, but then, you know, of course it was lying. But, uh, yeah, the, I mean, he had, like, horrible conflicts with his lead actors for the, the first two films. Uh, features he made as director <laughs> that is a shame um but at the same time blue collar from the opening credits has me sold yeah. that you know um i'm a man song sung sung by captain beefheart um and recorded by the composer jack nietzsche and you have ry cooter on guitar and you have lyrics by paul schrader <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just fucking on. Once that, once that, that like that, cre- those credits get you going. And this is one of the best uh, examples of watching characters at their job struggling. Um, and then obviously you see them at home and you see them interacting together. But it's really a, a testament to its time and place, and yet it feels timely today when you think about. Uh, Michigan, in context of the uh, you know auto industry, mm. Detroit in particular, the way it's crumbling, um, and it, it, it it's just a, a movie that feels like yes, it was made then, but it feels right at home now, and all of these men that sort of try to stand up for the oppressed and you know challenge the establishment. The truth of the, ma- the the fact of the matter is you still get caught up in your own needs and your role in the world to where you lose sight of making a difference. And I think that that theme plays so beautifully in this movie. And that final shot, although the dialogue spoken is very didactic, um, that's probably like the only complaint I have is like you could have ended on that freeze frame and I might have like just said five star perfect movie masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I don't think you needed the Yafet Kodo speech, even though it's like maybe one sentence of yeah. saying, you know, they pin black against white, and that's how it is. Right, it's the Oliver Stone uh, idea of, like, there's no need for subtlety and agitprop. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I understand. At the time, that was sort of the norm. It certainly happens um, throughout the last act of Bone. But uh, yeah, I just—it's—it's it's it's, a perfect movie up until then. It's, it's, to me. And it's an odd film in the context of his career because it doesn't deal with like you know the existential loner male character or right. you, know, uh, you know revenge or sexual like sexual obsessiveness. You know, it, it, it deals with uh, you know socio-political issues, and I think that that might have helped it critically just because you know it's a very left-leaning political message film. Um, that that doesn't hurt, like in certain kind of film critic circles, which you know Schrader had kind of come from that world. Uh, but it's also before he really found his footing as far as becoming a visual stylist. So it has that rough around the edges New Hollywood feel. But it fits, yeah, in context of these characters and the story it's trying to tell. It also, and feels yet more... it has really dark moments where, yeah. like Keitel's daughter 
with the braces sure. and stuff. Yeah. So there's there's some dark stuff in here. Oh yeah, and it, it and it also feels like a little bit looser and more improvisation uh like because of prior. Yeah. Um definitely. That isn't something that's really a hallmark of the later films. So it, it definitely feels like I mean an assured first step and it, I can understand there are some people that think that's still his best film. I I don't know it, it's hard for me to say that, but I it, it's it's definitely one that's aged really well, and it, the cult following continues to build for that one. I mean, it was not a success uh, commercially. Um, they, I'm sure you know that they mismarketed it deliberately oh, yeah. as a Richard Pryor comedy. That's they don't know what to do with Richard Pryor <laughs> in movies. Clearly. No, it's it's bizarre. I mean, well, a lot of I mean, you know, I mean, Chris Rock had the same problem as far as like, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, eventually he had to just go, you know, make his own independent film, but like. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's great work from all three of them, though. And I think Yafet Koto, you know, tends to get overshadowed, you know, by, you know, I mean, people that are coming to it from the Scorsese end of things are going, you know, it's Keitel from Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. And Richard Pryor, you know, people are just excited to see him, like, doing really solid dramatic work, even though they know him primarily as a comic. Um, Yafet Koto is equally, you know, holds his own in that trio, um, not not to plagiarize the uh, projection booth, but um, yeah. like I completely concur with whoever said he's got an amazing smile. Oh, like yeah. he's got he's got like a real darkness to him, and you can like he's really brooding and menacing. But then when he smiles, you're like, oh man, I want to give this guy a hug. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's got a really interesting dichotomy to him that I just. I adore in pretty much everything I've seen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know him primarily from stuff he did in the 70s. Like, I know him from Bone, I know him from Alien, I know him from Blue Collar. But I I, I got to say this, like, you know, I know he continues to work, and uh, I just have not really followed what he's done really since that period. Yeah, and I think it's um, interesting to, to point out, too, at, like, one point, I'm expecting this to turn into a full-blown heist movie, but it's one of the most low-key kind of afterthoughts in the movie. It's just like, oh, they did a heist, and that's that. And it more or less becomes more about the macro level of the union and the politics within that that makes it more of a um, social political film rather than it just being like about guys trying to get even with a man or whatever. And that to me, it it, it kind of makes it a special film in Schrader's filmography in that it's it stands out. Like, watching this kind of like... Because I'd seen stuff like Hardcore, um, I was expecting a different film. And what I got was just like, oh, this is totally my thing. This is totally like the kind of movie, uh, if I'd seen it early on, would have been one of my favorites of all time, I think. Uh, but having seen so many other films that probably could play very well right next to this, um, I... I'd, I will just say, like, there's, there's, like, a really weird, like, a dildo fight, um, <laughs> and, like I said, just that last shot, or, you know, the last, uh, uh, voiceover just doesn't sit well with me. It might be, it will, in context of the times or whatever, but, um, I've seen it twice, and I love it more and more. It's, if you haven't seen this, you got to you, you have to admit that I think I think Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino should cut a check to Schrader. Oh yeah. Cuz there are moments in this that totally remind me of stuff Spike Lee and Tarantino would do, especially with dialogue. So I'm sure they're both 
I mean, very familiar with Schrader. I mean, just from the Scorsese, you know, connection alone. But uh, yeah, it's funny because uh, you mentioned uh, watching it twice, and the one that I had only seen, I think, once before, um, and then rewatching it for this podcast, that, that maybe did the biggest jump in my, uh, you know, in my estimation was the uh, hardcore. Uh, I'd seen it. And I remembered the you know, the general plot, and I remembered maybe some of the flaws in it. But that that is a really compelling film for the most part, and I was really happily surprised going back to it. I know Schrader himself is a little bit uh, kind of dismissive of it, but uh, I, I think it is one of his great films. Really, um, I, it's, I do too. It feels like a uh, an answer to what Scorsese did with his Taxi Driver script in a way. Like it yeah. feels like his his spin on the material, but like, you know, making Travis Bickle his dad instead of him, you know, basically making it like this very rigid, uh, conservative, uh, patriarchal figure. Uh, but it's the same searcher's idea of, you know, this kind of very set in his ways, stubborn man going out into what he feels is like this kind of savage environment to, to rescue a girl that maybe doesn't really want to be rescued by him because <laughs> he's kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah, it's clearly a very personal film. Yeah. And maybe that's why Schrader's kind of dismissive of it because maybe it hits too close to home and it's one of those things you kind of want to brush under the rug. Maybe just reminded of the tensions with George C. Scott, too. I don't know. True, true, true. Um yeah, and as I said, I, I've I, I lived in Grand Rapids. There is this embodiment of Calvinism. There's a college there called Calvin College, and uh, a traditionalist kind of nature to the town, to where you know there are many people protesting outside abortion clinics. There's a church on nearly every corner. Um, I was actually it's interesting. I was actually warned before I was I moved there by a, a coworker. Um, for this bread company I was working for, who told me that Grand Rapids is the most conservative place he's ever lived, and he lived in like 20 cities his whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get that impression that's like the most conservative town, but it was definitely jarring coming from Illinois and Chicago and um, even to some extent Indiana, but I, I think they're kind of neck and neck. But I just was like, yeah, I can see why people might be turned off um, by this by this town, and yet you know, people also embrace it. It's it's a, it's an interesting city that is captured very beautifully in the opening credits. Um, you know, if you've ever spent a winter in Michigan, you'll, you'll nod in recognition through the, uh, you know, people shoveling to no end. Uh, and there are definitely, like, there's a shot of um, uh, a river that I recognized. And it, it, this movie has an interesting layer to it that it didn't have before with it being set in Grand Rapids, although the majority of it does take place in L.A., yeah. it's still interesting knowing that his father and his you know his upbringing obviously plays a role in this story overall. Yeah, it, um, it feels like an equally autobiographical film as Taxi Driver is, but just the, the, the emphasis is shifted, so it's not on him. But, I mean, he probably has some of that same upbringing kind of lingering, and it's that, that same kind of, like... Um, push pull inside between like the kind of religious upbringing and like the attraction to uh the seedier sides of los angeles which you know schrader you know definitely celebrates that aspect of it more than scorsese does with taxi driver like that you know 
there's a there's a certain kind of discomfort with tackling the sexuality in, in Scorsese movies um, that yeah. Schrader does not have that. Um, he has a, a much more leering kind of attitude towards uh, the sexual aspect of uh, something like autofocus or uh, cat people. You know, he, he, he can get lurid, but, uh, you know, it's... I, I, it's funny. I was thinking about this earlier today, like what taxi driver means in terms of his career. Because if you think about like someone like Quentin Tarantino, if true romance had had the impact of Pulp Fiction, and then Pulp Fiction itself came out and was maybe like the Reservoir Dogs, like you know, modest success, you know, to cinephiles, but the landscape was changed by Tony Scott's True Romance. That's kind of what Taxi Driver feels like to me in terms of like how it li- hovers over everything Schrader does as a director. Yeah. Because um, it's like, you know, whenever you see mention of him in, uh, you know, articles, you know, aimed at the larger public, they always mention Taxi Driver, that early screenplay credit more so, and maybe American Gigolo, his one substantial hit as a director. But it's, it's still kind of, uh, it must be a frustrating on some level. And I know that people like Scorsese bring up, you know, increasingly bring up like, oh, it's, it's you know, Paul Schrader's, you know, vision. It's, you know, it, it, and Scorsese can afford to be benevolent because he has like all these other, you know, iconic films under his belt now. He can, he can give Taxi Driver to Schrader. <laughs> but uh, I, well, what do you think, what would a Paul Schrader directed Taxi Driver would have been like? It, I mean, I guess it would have been like hardcore. I guess so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the thing about, Taxi Driver is that it's the perfect marriage of what Scorsese can bring to a project. Bringing that script to an even, like, it it takes it places I don't think Schrader could have achieved even at his height as a director. Uh, And he grew into a pretty accomplished visual stylist in his own right, but I don't think, I don't think he could have made as good a film. And that's not like to say he's not made some great films. I just don't think his inclinations as far as like allowing the uh like the actors to improvise in the uh you know the rehearsal period to kind of free up the language a little bit like it's it's everybody at the right and he's admitted this himself like it's everybody at the right point in their careers to make something and and the right point in the culture for a film like that to succeed because you know when that same kind of material is tackled as like light sleeper it's you know nobody gives a shit <laughs> which is kind of sad um because I mean I, I I will even attest to to some extent that you know Light Sleeper is you know Schrader doing Schrader yeah. but it's done so well at the same time it's a, it's a story that I guess just works in terms of drama and you know it's a, when you have some that's the thing that we can touch on in a bit too is as much as I think American Gigolo is very good. It didn't engage me emotionally in the way that Light Sleeper did. I think yeah. it's possible that maybe I can get more invested in the story if it's a drug dealer played by Willem Dafoe as opposed to a male prostitute played by Richard Gere. Yeah. I don't know. It could be it could be something as simple as that that keeps Light Sleeper being, you know, uh, as something that I just personally connected to more. Same. Do you, and, what, oh, I'm sorry. Dude. No, go ahead. Go ahead. All right, so American Gigolo, his third feature as director, was and remains his only like big hit. What do you think about it? Why do you think that that one connected? 
I, it's hard to tell. I mean, it, the way it starts out, it's so... Um, it's much like the beginning of Blue Collar, where the song itself informs w- what you're what you're possibly going to um, see in the terms of energy and uh, who this character, who this protagonist embodies in a way. Like just that 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 opening song in Blue Collar sets the tone and lets you know these are the kind of people you're going to get down with. And American Gigolo starts with a great Blondie song, and it gets me riled up, and I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be great. This is going to be full of energy. And it kind of isn't. It's it's a good film. It's a really good film, and it's sort of, again, Schrader doing Schrader, and Schrader sort of um, doing the <laughs> pickpocket thing. Well, that's and doing first, it well. Yeah, that's I, the first I, time he starts, you know, blatantly lifting from pickpocket. And I saw him talk about American Gigolo, uh, and he said that, you know, that ending, like, I, I think he was just attracted to the to the the gutsiness of throwing the ending of pickpocket onto that. <laughs> and uh, I don't know that he was necessarily like. I think he's a little bit embarrassed by that now. I wouldn't be. I mean, it's it's tough to say because like you can. Some people can call it outright plagiarism, but because I'm, like, I would say Pickpocket might be in one of my, at least be in my top twenty favorite endings of all time. Yeah. So if you if you're gonna ins- if you're gonna rip off from certain people, that's fine. Like, yeah. it, it, I mean, if the, if the rest of the movie was bullshit and then you just threw that in there, then I'd be pissed. But um, it works. It, that yeah. ending works for me in context of what this character is experiencing and going through. Um, I have a hard time caring about Richard Gere, and I don't know why. I mean, he's one of my mom's favorite actors, probably because of this movie and his hot bod. Right. But uh, he's a bit he's a bit too stoic for me at times. I, but that said, the, but that's the character too. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I understand. It's, too. I mean, it's a very it's a very shallow, image conscious, all flash kind of. Man, um, in in a way, it's 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 like uh, almost like in a way the character in Autofocus, like it's a very unself-aware kind of hero. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I I gotta say, Bill, stoicism. Yes, it, it's it really. I struggle with it, and that can pretty that can be pretty much my review of the canyons. Like just yeah. the acting from the first scene on, I'm kind of like struggling to really um, get involved. And maybe it's the same thing with how Patrick feels about Hal Hartley characters, where, you know, maybe it's just a stylized way to act that's so detached, so disconnected, um, that it just... I, I, I feel like I'm completely on the outside looking into that world rather than engaging with these characters. Yeah, well, I think I think the thing I find really compelling about American Gigolo is how plastic it all is. Um, I think yeah. that, you know, because that's where he brings in, um, I don't know if I'm going to say raise it, Ferdinando Scarfiati, who was the, uh, you know, he worked on Bertolucci's uh, Conformist, and so he was oh, the yeah, visual it's, consultant. It's well shot. And you can all of a sudden see like architecture being incorporated like in shots in a very like like he's expressing urban urban alienation through a visual style all of a sudden like he's 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 suddenly using the camera for more than just capturing the actors uh yeah he he's he's using fancy uh like mirror shots like he's he's having fun with style for the first time 
And it's also, uh, it's part of that Simpson-Bruckheimer kind of like early 80s thing where it's, you bring in the Giorgio Moroder music, you bring in the Giorgio Armani clothing, you bring in this kind of, I mean, the same kind of approach that, um, you know, there was a wave of British filmmakers that had come out of advertising, like Ridley Scott, Tony Scott, Alan Parker, Adrian Lyne. Uh, and there was a, also a, a concurrent uh, French uh, wave uh, called Cinema de Luc that was um, like Luc Besson, Jean-Jacques Benique, uh that like they had like this very glossy, very 80s, like very contemporary for its time kind of visual style. And that's where Paul Schrader starts bringing in like the American equivalent to that approach. Um, sure, it's, it's a, I can sense that. It's a very different thing. And it's funny because, like, you know, the 80s killed off, at least temporarily, a lot of the big guns of the new Hollywood. Like, you know, a, a lot of them had a hard time adapting to the new model. Um, but Schrader, maybe surprisingly, because he was like this kind of like brainy screenwriter, <laughs> you know, suddenly had this like very mod, flashy hit. But at the same time, it's, it's informed by Brisson. Like, it's informed by Bertolucci. Like, it's. It's not like you know you you see that poster with like the iconic Richard Gere with like the slits of light, and it's like yeah, on one level, it's not taken seriously because the word gigolo is silly, it's you know it makes you think of David Lee Roth doing just a gigolo or whatever, like you think about you know the uh the fact that it's eroticizing a male character in like a real blatant way, the way he's photographed, like it's very informed by. I don't want to say like it's necessarily informed by like a gay perspective, but I know that Simpson and Bruckheimer were consciously trying to capture gay elements in their Hollywood mainstream films in a way that I know that like there's a famous Top Gun speech that Quentin Tarantino gives in that movie uh, Sleep with Me. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but like the uh, oh yes, you know that that's a real thing that they were doing, and I think um, you know you look at American Gigolo, and that's maybe the start of that kind of like almost homoerotic mainstream style um, that never, and, it doesn't really it, discuss that way. But I mean, I think that that's definitely a part of why it connected. I don't know if it's necessarily like you would compare to something like magic Mike, which was like a fluke blockbuster for Soderbergh, but it's like that same kind of like, you know, it's the intellectual art cinema that just happens to have a lot of, you know, male flesh on display. <laughs> I can sense that. And, I, and um, I think that that's a big part of why it was successful, but also why it's not, it's maybe not taken seriously for a hit, <laughs> you know, on, uh, on his filmography. Like, I don't, I, I, you never hear American Gigolo being talked up the same way as Blue Collar or Affliction or Mishima. And I think that part of it is because it's, it's like this big, trashy, but also kind of cold film. Um, so when he made The Canyons, I thought, Oh, it's that aesthetic plus the Brett Easton Ellis aesthetic. Even if it's kind of, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think watching the second time, I realized the problems a lot more with it. But it, I thought it was funny that like those two would combine those two uh, different ways of approaching uh, the Los Angeles noir kind of story. I'm surprised they didn't for less than zero. Honestly, I think that they could have met earlier on. Yeah, and collaborated to do something like that because I was reminded of like the depiction of LA in this as how it is in Less Than Zero to some extent, yeah. whereas like hardcore sort of depicts 
LA sleaze and like a neon light of sorts and doesn't you know doesn't in a more colorful way here it's a little different it's kind of more insidious and yeah. i think uh i think it's i think it's a really interesting film in in context of his career it's certainly better than um deuce bigelow male gigolo right. I'll, I'll, I'll i'll give it that yeah um and i i you know i i think it's interesting again this one thing that schrader does and does really really well is he loves to watch people get ready for the job. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, that, that, kind of ritual. that sequence, yeah, that's that whole little montage sequence of uh of gear putting on his clothes and getting ready to go out for the night is is great. And it, it, again, it, it helps to have Blondie's call me throughout and sort of like uh Marauder's um kind of like electric synth score, but it's also playing little variations of Blondie throughout the movie, which yeah. I kind of like. I like those little touches. And you got you have guys like Hector Elizondo and Bill Duke and Lorne Hutton. You got you got you got a really good cast doing um top-notch work throughout. Um so I mean it it's it's just a it's, it's a movie that again, I just I wonder if I if I had seen it after or I mean, if I'd seen it before Light Sleeper. I wonder if I would have liked it more. Maybe it's because like I put Light Sleeper kind of uh, uh, in higher esteem at the, just because yeah. like that was the first Schrader movie in that ilk that sort of like um, spoke to me and at least made me go, oh man, Schrader movies can really affect me emotionally. Yeah, I would, well, I'd, I'd agree. The Light Sleeper is a better film, um, I, I, but I, it's it's funny you didn't get a chance to see The Walker, right? The uh, no, which is. Very blatantly, an update variation on Gigolo, um, but it's with uh, Woody Harrelson as as uh, a, a gay male escort of sorts, but not like for money. Like he's 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 someone that is just what the Walker means is that it's it's like someone that is kind of like the. Uh, the male date of uh, women that are like political wives that don't have like the husband doesn't want to go to the opera. So they'll bring this gay man along who's like very witty and outrageous. And he's, he's the life of the party, like for these, for these women, but like he does not, he doesn't have sex with them. It's not for money. It's just for like his own like maybe self-worth to be included in high society of sorts if that makes any huh. sense. So it's but it's like the same idea. Um did he create a trilogy of sorts? It's not most most filmmakers tend to do that now. Well, they like lump Well, he lumps movies he together. lumps um Taxi Driver, American Gigolo, Light Sleeper and The Walker together as the man in the room films like <laughs> he has other he has another name for it too but the man in the room is the, is the phrase he returns to the most and like it's funny because light sleeper corresponds to taxi driver and american gigolo corresponds to the walker and they all kind of have that same kind of like you know lonely man working the job at night kind of um, idea, but they're, I mean, and, and Walker even has the same kind of like, there's a crime, he didn't do it, but now he's being targeted. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it's got a lot of similarities to American Gigolo, but it's, it, at that point, it was like, even with some big stars in it, because it has um, Lily Tomlin, it has, uh, uh, what's her name, uh, Lauren Bacall, 
Um, it's it's got uh, Kristen Scott Thomas, um, but it, it's and Woody Harrelson's terrific in it. I mean, I don't know if you know in the, in a time where it's post True Detective and post uh, House of Cards, if like a Washington D.C. you know d- melodrama intrigue thriller with Woody Harrelson would actually have a bigger uh, chance of uh, better better chance of finding an audience because I think it barely got released when it came out. It was just, it was just seen as like a lot of Schrader's films later on barely got released. Yeah, well, he. I mean, yeah, it's funny. You look at the actual box office numbers, and almost none of them connected with an audience. It's bizarre yeah. how I don't know if it's just the respect that he has that he still keeps finding financing at times. I, I mean, I'm saying like Canyons was like, you know, kickstarted, but like the, uh, and I don't know if he gets, you know, he was eventually having to do screenplays for other films again, like bringing out the dead. But like, uh, he, uh, the, when you get to the Walker, I mean, you talk about Schrader doing Schrader, and it's maybe the most blatant example of it. It's almost kind oh, of yeah. like, feels like when, um, <sighs> this is maybe an odd comparison, but when like some of the nineties indie directors make these kind of like, odd sequels to like signature films from their nineties heydays. Like when Hal Hartley makes sequels to Henry fool or Salon's mix, uh, sequels to, you know, happiness. And now he has welcome to the dollhouse sequel coming out soon. Like he does. Yeah. With Greta oh. Gerwig as the Don Wiener character. Oh, that's weird. Wiener dog is the title. I, it's not playing at New York film I'm, festival. I think it's coming out maybe next year, but Greta Gerwig talked about it. I'm ready to, I'm ready to, I'm ready to say this outright. Um, I'm done. I, I, I just I had, I can't get excited about Todd Salons anymore. I really can't. I mean, happiness, welcome dollhouse, great. After that, not so much. Well, not that we get, not that we have to go on another digression, but yeah, just yeah. just to say, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> and we we'll we'll have that conversation at length another time. But the uh, sure the uh, but going back to uh, to Gigolo, that also equipped him with uh, some of the same people that he would bring to another Bruckheimer production, uh, Cat People, which I think you watched for this also, right? What did you think yeah. of Cat People? Um, I liked it. I didn't love it. Uh, there's definitely a couple of films, maybe even I think American Gigolo might be one of them, where trim 10, 15 minutes and get a tighter film. Yeah. Um, pacing is kind of uh, an issue for for this one as well. And I just... It it almost feels like he's kind of on autopilot, but, um, you know, he's saying things, you know, that I think he's said in other films better, uh, just about, like, sort of the degradation of sexual innocence, and yet at the same time, it's kind of like this lurid B-movie. I don't know, I just... I have a, such a fondness for the subtextual under the surface tension of the original film mm-hmm. that this one pales in comparison. And it's not fair to sort of compare the two because they're very different. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, there are certainly sequences that are great and there are moments that I was just like, that's that's really cool. And obviously you got uh, another great uh, David Bowie incorporation that Tarantino felt obliged to use. Sure. And, you know, again, a really great... You got Malcolm McDowell, John Hurd, uh, you know, so it's a great cast. And Ed O'Toole, you got even Lynn Lowry from uh, the old Cronenberg Shivers, and uh, yeah, you, you've got uh, you've got an interesting cast. You've got Nastasha Kinski, like you know, at the but height of her. An, it's another kind of like 
I don't want to say it's one of those Shannon Tweed Showtime movies. It's not, but it, it, it's it, it, what it's trying to say about you know there's an animal in us all waiting to come out. Uh, it just doesn't sit well with me this time around. The, uh, I don't know. The, it's just it's 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 just blah well, it's, overall. For it, well, me. It's funny because it's it's him adapting a screenplay from Alan Ormsby, who comes out of mm-hmm. the. Uh, you know, the Bob Clark horror movies like Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things and Death Dream. He wrote it. And then Schrader, you know, kind of changed that ending to that such a bizarre... I, I, can, I, I guess, can I spoil the ending to Cat People? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the ending to, to, to Schrader's to Cat People is, um, you know, she's she spares his life when... Right, so the premise of it, I mean, is, you know, is she's afraid that she will uh, turn into a panther and kill people if, if you know, she has sex, uh, which turns out to be a valid fear. And uh, the when she has sex with John Hurt character, she f- flees to spare his life, but then uh, when she's back in the human form, like, she just wants to be among other panthers, so <laughs> he ties her up, fucks her, and puts her in the zoo, and then visits her at the zoo, and, like, that's the ending of the yep. movie. <laughs> It is such an odd way to end a commercial film. I think that that probably would have uh, harmed its commercial prospects rather than like a, a, a traditional like horror movie, you know, shootout ending with the monster attacking people and then you know like an American Wolf in London kind of ending. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's There's... the thing. American Wolf in London just blows this movie out of the water. Well, they're radically different, but I mean, yeah, I, I would say it's the better film, but it's, I, Cat People has a lot of unusual qualities for a, uh, a horror remake. Um, I think his, his own maybe obsess, obsession with Nastasha Kinski, like, informs some of that lure. Yeah. I don't know. It's funny, like, when you, you know, we're living through this kind of, like, era of, like, every horror film Under the Sun being remade. I, I think they're actually getting closer to remaking Suspiria now. And they, I think even Tilda Swinton's name is being thrown Oh, around. wow. Um, but, you know, when people, and without exception, all my friends seem to really yeah, react in horror to this uh, trend. But I, I think back to something like Cat People, I'm like, well, even if you don't get the Val Luton Jacques Turner film, you get something you can you can get something personal and weird um uh, that might be of interest in its own right and this is definitely something that it's not one of my favorite schrader films but it's i don't get bored with it it's definitely it's kind of fascinating that something this odd was sold as a major release yeah <laughs> no I, I i agree I, again it's it's sort of a anomaly in a way but it's like there's definitely Schrader themes. I think yeah. they're just better explored. I mean, I I like that he... It's clear that he was meant to do some kind of horror movie. I wish it kind of been an original story of his own. He doesn't like the genre, though. Yeah, I just... I mean, something like... I don't want to say, like, hardcore could have been a horror film, but, it, it, yeah. you know, there, there's elements throughout his career aiming to be like a really dark, insane psychological horror film. And here it's, you know, bordering on that. It's got some, you know, kinkiness to it and some playfulness to it. It's got, I just, I don't know, maybe tonally it's not as consistent as I would prefer. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's, 
it's one of those things too where especially how for how naked Natasha Kinski is it's one of those feelings where I'm torn because like in something like Life Force where the lead actress is pretty yeah. much walking around naked for the whole film. That's a good film. point of comparison. Yeah, I didn't thought of that. I'm always like torn by like, is that a good choice? Because it's distracting. Um, <laughs> but right, you know, right. it, it, well, it's it, yeah, it's it, it, in a way, it's it's an interesting follow up to Gigolo also because he keeps sure. the Giorgio Moroder uh, relationship going and also uh, uh, the same uh, visual consultant uh, Scarfiati. So it has like that same kind of sleek uh polish to it um and he was also coming off of his one hit so there's like a confidence to it like oh i'm gonna have another hit now (laughs) there's definitely a confidence to it i'll give it that you know Uh, there's one thing we forgot to bring up too with uh probably one of my favorite schrader moments in his entire filmography involved shorty scott watching a movie in (laughs) in a theater and uh, some people can be like again you know very turned off by you know the hamminess of it the uh, you know and i and I just I I'm floored by that moment. I think George C. Scott sells that moment. Uh, you know, again, like sort of. I, I always get a thrill out of scenes that take place in movie theaters, not just because I love movies, but when they're in a movie and they're done right. I just uh, I, I feel like yeah, there's just something to that. I always go. I want to make a you know for my clip party uh, a collection of clips of that take place in movie theaters because I love them so much. Uh, even in something, even in a mediocre movie like Donnie Darko, the fact that they're watching Evil Dead and the bunnies there, and there's just like th- things about scenes in movie theaters that really work well for me, and that one is in particular a highlight for me. And I just wish that movie didn't end with George C. Scott turning into the Hulk and breaking down walls. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, the action, the action-ish ending of it. Um, I know that Roger Ebert and others have, have complained that it gets a little bit too you know, cliche at that yeah. point. But it's interesting that the, uh, the ending also hinges on him rejecting the woman that he had befriended on the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, that it gives a little bit of a sour feeling, which is interesting. Like it's not all like everything is not positively resolved for all the characters that you come to like, you know, and if I had been sitting in a movie theater watching dying of the light, I totally would have been like, turn it off. Turn it off! Yeah, uh, it's, I don't think that many people even saw it in the theater to have that reaction to it. So it's that, that's true. It was playing in like one theater, like in a suburban theater in the Chicagoland area that you'd have to drive completely out of your way to. And I was really tempted, just because I was hearing about how awful it was. But I'm glad because uh, it's yeah. one of those movies where I was I had to do something else. I had to like go on my phone or like, it was just like. This movie is so uh, god awful. I mean, we'll get to it, but I'm just yeah. like, yeah. Uh, and I always, ha- I'd have to wonder what the universe would have been like had Nicholas Winding Refn made it with Harrison Ford, which was wow. was supposed to happen originally, wow. and then he made Drive instead. And uh, well, we'll get to that. But yeah, um, um, I gotta say, I was floored by the the visuals on display in Mishima: A Life in Four Chapters. I was like, wow, look at you, Schrader. Um, it's like him turning into Tarsim all of a sudden, uh, or Tarsim, I should say. Yeah. It's it, like, there's, there's moments in there. I'm just like, wow, this is gorgeous. I love this. I'm going to have to own this movie on Blu-ray. Um, yeah. Well, it's not out on Blu-ray yet, but there is, oh. I guess, a high def master maybe already in existence that Schrader's talking about. So it is probably coming. I would be surprised if, uh, if it doesn't come out with the next 12 months. 
But uh, yeah, that's that is the most visually impressive uh, and radical structure-wise, uh, you know, Paul Schrader film. I think it's the one that is least concerned with the commercial realities of the business um, because yeah. I think what happened was I, I, I'm going to butcher the the uh, the entire timeline of it, but something happened where like the the financing kind of came like half the financing came in like in a mysterious no questions asked kind of way on the Japanese side and then Coppola and George Lucas basically used their influence in Hollywood to get the Hollywood half of the money in so nobody involved thought they were going to see any money from it so on on the one hand it was like Schrader wasn't really even expected to deliver a commercial product, and that's like, well, that that means like it's just going to be really good, so it better be really good. But it it, it it had no commercial life; it was just one made for purely artistic motivated reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I don't know. You, you, we talk about the themes of like the lone hero and, and suicide, and like ironic, you know, uh, and sexual confusion slash sure. ambiguity. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it has a lot of those same themes swing around, but it's also a, a very unconventional biopic. He's done several now uh, biopics, uh, Raging Bull, uh, you know, being one of the big ones prior to this. Um, uh, but, um, real, real quick, is it biopic or biopic? Because I've, I guess it could heard, be one or the other. I've heard but, it both ways. Okay. Maybe it is better said biopic. <laughs> I just was wondering, just because of have I been saying it wrong this whole time? Oh shit. yeah, I probably just said it wrong. I don't know, but the uh, <laughs> I don't either. I'll have to look that up. Um, anyway, but, but yeah, anyway, the, uh, the, uh, yeah, Mishima, I think, I know he said that that was the one he's most proud of as a director. Um, I think that one and, and Light Sleeper are probably his favorites. Um, I don't know. I, I think that it's, it's a hard film to talk about cause it's, it's so dense. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's, it's a fascinating, uh, film. I mean, I would, I definitely would recommend it to the daring if they if they haven't heard it. Even if they don't necessarily respond to most of the Paul Schrader films, it's very different than uh, than most of his mo- most popular work in yeah, terms I of said, style. I, after it was over, I said I sent e- uh, an email to Patrick. I'm like, you have to see this because it sort of um, defies all your hangups and issues with traditional biopics it it sort of flips the conventions of them on its ear to where it's like told out of sequence it's surreal at times uh it includes excerpts from the uh you know the 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 subject's novels like you know that it's just it's you know startlingly it's startling to see at times just these sort of like artificial backgrounds sort of blending into reality the score by philip glass is magical it's yeah. one of the best scores i've ever heard um and uh, you've heard it a lot <laughs> yeah clearly clearly i have and it's but it's a challenging movie to where i can't give it more than like a b plus forced four out of five rating right now just because like it was hard for me to process entirely despite being in awe of it I just, yeah. I, I think I need to watch it again. I bet it'll be, get bumped up more and more. Yeah, it, it is. It is a challenging film. I mean, that's one that I, I was really hoping. I'm glad you had, you know, found the time to see it before we recorded because, yeah, it is. It is a more demanding work than yeah. the other films, but it is. 
I think one of the key films of his uh, directorial career, and and you know, I, I can definitely understand why some people would argue that this is his masterpiece. I, I sure it's hard for me to say, but it's definitely it's definitely like a memorable uh, experience, um, and it's not boring. I mean, it's it's just you got to be on your toes to keep through it. In a way, the only other film I can think of that reminded me of it, and almost nobody has seen this in America, is. Uh, Abel Ferrara's Pasolini uh, with Willem Dafoe um, as uh, director uh, Pierpaolo Pasolini. Uh, I saw it in your film festival last year. It never came out in America. Um, but it's a similar kind of thing where it's in the last days of this public artist who was like this celebrity within his own country as well as like a noted artist. And it, like, it, it, it kind of tackles like, the last days, but also the... Uh, well, I mean, Mishima is really the last hours, but, the, yeah. uh, but incorporates... Uh, relevant um, work uh, in, in the Pasolini film it, it incorporates um, like uh, dra- it, it dramatizes a story of his and like uh, dramatizes like an unfit like an unmade film he was going to work on next um, and ties that all into the narrative about you know, the man himself and the same way that like Mishima it takes uh, several different stories and kind of visualizes them in a way that they, they resonate with the man himself in, in, in what he ultimately did uh, that that very bizarre public, you know, <laughs> I yeah. just, it's 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 a, one of those stranger than fiction kind of kind of well, stories. It is, and at the same time, I forgot what the term is for when people set themselves on fire in public. But there's just uh, uh, you know that different I mean, cultures do these things that seem <laughs> foreign in a way, but at the same time. It's a part of, um, you know, their not their integrity so much, but just th- their sense of self is defined by their actions and what they f- choose to do in this time. And it's like for him to do that at the age of 40 as sort of saying like, well, I'm at the peak and yeah. this is, you know, I'm at my most beautiful in a way. Like I, I'm not going to, things aren't going to get better from this point on, so I better end it now. That's something that you don't normally get in in, in modern movies as a way to like, um, you know, showcase somebody s- sort of psychological disconnection. Um, yeah, it's it's funny because I think that like Schrader had like this very suicidal kind of impulse uh, when he was a younger man. Uh, both he and his brother, like I think their father's side of the family, like almost all the guys, like in their extended family, were like you know. Like, there were like multiple suicides and they both like had this like kind of fixation on suicide and it, it, it factors into a lot of things that Schrader wrote including Taxi Driver um, like that kind of like death wish and I think that the way Schrader approaches Mishima is like the artist with the suicidal impulse uh, it's like the ultimate act of performance art by making the act of suicide because I guess what Mishima wanted to do was kill himself and then use the blood as he's dying to write one last poem, I think. Um, yeah, I think so. And so like that whole idea of like the, su- like the, the suicidal act from the artist's perspective, I think was what attracted him to that material. Um, not that a film plays that morose, uh, cause it's a very exuberant, yeah. uh, ma- you know, film, but it has like that. And they, and they don't linger on the violence of, of the act, but it's, it's, I, don't know, I think that that's what motivates it, and it makes it like personal in a way that is a very curious thing, you know, for an artist to even be public about. Really, 
it's very contemplative in that way, and it's it's more like not judging suicide as like because some people just go, oh, he gave up, you know. Like a lot of people automatically get very negative about somebody who takes their own life, you know. You know, it's probably just more of an instinctual reaction, you know. To especially a family member who loses somebody. They automatically want to go. Oh well, th- you know that that person was just so depressed they couldn't handle life, or you know they, they they tend to do that. But in some weird way, there are people, and I think Schrader's one of them. Especially after you know knowing about Mishima and seeing this film, that now this, he doesn't romanticize it, but he sort of just allows and accepts somebody to do that if that's what they choose to do, and not damn them for it. Right which is kind of an interesting place to be. And, you know, it's it's almost like, um, you know, when somebody chooses to end their life sooner. I know there's another term that I'm blanking out on that, that's, that happens, um, especially in the elderly. Like euthanasia? So, yeah, yeah kind of, yeah. I think, I, I know that there's, 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 there's actually like, you know, PBS specials on it and all. And, oh, okay. You know, there's just, um, just deciding to end your life sooner if you're suffering from debilitating depression or Alzheimer's or any type of disease that you know is going to really affect you mm. and you just decide to, you know, have some sort of um, injection and decide to end your life. And I think there are people out there who are very supportive of that. And I think uh, Schrader sort of represents that here visually very well and not in a, it's just a, it's just a weird film too. It's a weird film that, I was very much taken aback by, but fell in love with at the same time. Yeah. But it, I still need to watch it again. <laughs> it's an easier film to admire than love, I think. But that doesn't make it a less great work. It just, I love the way it looks, just because yeah. I was not expecting that from Schrader. I was like, wow, look at this. This is gorgeous. I yeah. want to see this on the big screen. You know? Yeah, no, it's, I think that those sets that the, uh, I forget the woman's name that designed like the, uh, the, the, the sound stages that uh, you know, all of the dramatizations of the stories take place on. But that's, yeah, the way it's photographed, it's, it, it is really quite beautiful. It's the most beautiful, it's like the most eye candy uh, Paul Schrader movie by, you know, some, some distance, I think. And like, um, a lot of great filmmakers that started in the seventies, you know, guys like, um, like Friedkin, there is a lull. There is certainly, uh, a point in the eighties in their, in their career where I don't know if they necessarily just start churning out things that they're not passionate about, or they just want to make films just to make films, even if the material isn't up to par. Uh, I did not watch a few films midway through um, his career here. Yeah, Light of Day, Patty Hearst, and The Comfort of Strangers are the next. If you can go through those super quick, that'd be great. Well, Light of Day was originally called Born in the USA, and it was a script that he'd written about two brothers in a rock and roll band, and he had presented it to Bruce Springsteen at a time that he was thinking about getting into acting. And the film didn't come out at the time, um, but then uh, Bruce Springsteen liked the title Born in the USA quite a lot and uh, even thanked Schrader after he basically, you know, used it without asking (laughs) um, in the credits to the album uh, Born in the USA, which basically made it so that he could not use that title without, you know, it being 
<laughs> looking like he was trying to tie into Bruce Springsteen. Springsteen did write the song Light of Day uh, for Joan Jett and uh, Michael J. Fox to sing in the film. Um, it's it's the most straightforward in terms of the style and the shooting. Like It's the most mainstream-friendly Paul Schrader film. I think he's really hard on it because it was not critically that well-received or even the commercial hit that a Michael J. Fox, Joan Jett musical was thought to be, um, you know, it, it seemed like a sure thing and it didn't really connect. It's Jenna Rollins plays the mother in it. And I think he has said that it's based on his mother, the way that George, you know, George T. Scott is based on his father in hardcore. So it is a personal film, even though it looks like the commercial concession film. Uh, it's it's entertaining. I mean, it's got a lot of actors. It even has uh, a young uh, pre Nine Inch Nails Trent Reznor with his band Exotic Birds, or whatever <laughs> the name was that that new romantic band he had. This has a great cast. And yeah, it sounds uh, right up my alley because I on love YouTube. movies about it's, bands. It's, it's on YouTube in its entirety right now. I definitely say if you want a light Paul Schrader film, like it's it's entertaining. I mean, I don't know. It's not like I don't know. You could make the argument that it's great art, but it's. You know, if you choose to watch Mishima and you want something like a, uh, you know, a dessert palate cleanser kind of film, and that's, you know, that's, unless you have a strong aversion to Michael J. Fox, and he's fine in it. I mean, that was one of his films like Casualties of War, where he's really trying to break out of, you know, the uh, the light comedy roles. But he's still Michael J. Fox doing that kind of character. Um, that he followed quickly with Patty Hearst, which was... That was something that was more like a work for hire, but it, and I think he just took it because it was already ready to go once they had a director, and he was kind of coming off like a bad experience with Light of Day in that reception. Patty Hearst is very daring. Um, he made it on a low budget, so he felt like he had more kind of artistic freedom, and he takes some real chances in the way it's structured. It's very visually stylish at times, but it it is not afraid to spend what feels like an eternity, essentially like with a character in a closet. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, I don't know how much you know about the Patty Hearst story with, like, the kidnapping by the SLA, and then they basically kind of break her down, and, you know, whether or not she becomes a militant, you know, urban guerrilla by choice to, to survive or because she really was brainwashed. I mean, the film lets you take it how you want, but it's... it's uh, it's it's an artistically interesting film that probably would have actually made some money had he told it in a more straightforward way. It's got some good performances. It has uh, Ving Rhames as uh, the leader of the of the group. It has um, yeah, it's it's got a lot of interesting qualities about it. It's not an easy film, but it's it's uh, and it also has the ending of Pickpocket. Um, ah, <laughs> Comfort of Strangers that. is a Harold Pinter script. It's really beautiful. It has a kind of lush. Angela Badalamente score. I, I forget if that's the first time they worked together, but they've done several films together. And I'm sure he picked up on that because of the David Lynch connection. Um, but the, he, uh, Christopher Walken uh, as a villain. Um, it's it's cold and really beautiful looking and interesting in the way, like, I mean, you know, the way P- Pinter writes is a very d- distinct style that's different from the Schrader kind of writing style. Um, it's worth a look. I liked it more on a second time. I watched it back in college and felt it was just too off-putting, but watching it now, I, I it's it's fun for what it is, but it's not an easy film to recommend. Uh, I think it might just feel a little bit too stilted for a lot of tastes. But um, yeah, so those are the films that 
precede Light Sleeper, which uh, was one that uh, we've already kind of addressed a little bit. Um, but I think that's one of his... I think that might be my favorite Paul Schrader film as a, as a director. I think so, um, particularly for David Spade's performance. Yes. Um, definitely his best work, better than Joe Dirt. Yeah, well, it's using the same logic that Scorsese <laughs> taught him with uh, casting Albert Brooks in Taxi Driver, which is if you've got a nothing part that you want to make a distinctive, hire a comedian because they will, they will bring a life to it that you didn't think of. <laughs> Right. Um I I know I I knew the existence of this movie and clearly <clears throat> was a fan of the cast and I heard mixed things about it like I never other I other than Ebert who I think pretty much loves all of Schrader's films. Very few the, exceptions, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um I just never heard like this being you know sung to the sung a lot of praises about so I just never got around to it until recently, and I'm glad I did because it is one of Willem Dafoe's best performances. Um, yeah, and it, you know it's not a very showy performance there, and it does have like kind of really great because like there, the one thing I read a lot about you know as a as a criticism of Schrader is that his visual palette is very flat and is often cited as like TV movie esque. And I would never go that far. I don't think it's dull because there are certain like lighting choices in this film and interesting colorization. And certainly even just the shot of him and Dana Delaney, uh, sitting together is framed for a very clear reason that you know there's just a a wall separating the two of them yeah that is you know intentional and really smart i i think yeah i think that this film has suffered from some of the worst transfers on video i think i was artisan put that out like it's like a full frame maybe like it's there's not like a good digital home video version of it i think that that the visual style of it would probably come like if Criterion could ever get this film, I think that its reputation would would jump really high because I think it's I think it's a very accomplished film and it's a I mean I think it's it definitely his best use of of Willem Dafoe with the possible exception of Autofocus and I know that they've done several films together. Um, yeah, it, I I don't know. I mean, I can its understand. themes are very familiar too. I mean, yeah. You can easily lump this into with Gigolo, and I think he has. And yeah, and Taxi I, Driver too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And you know, there's confrontation towards the end that you come to expect. There's an ending that pretty much mirrors Pickpocket again. Oh yeah. Uh, and you know, a relationship that's you know really complex. And you know, I but at the, at the same time, like I became really invested and involved. With um, you know Dana Delaney and, and and Willem Dafoe, and the way they you know talk about their past and try to look past it and try to move forward, and then you know re- regression occurring, and it's just it, you know it's one of those movies that I can't really like say it stands out as like this great work of art that you've never seen before, but it's something that's just done right. That's really a great example of a movie from this you know, from the early 90s that, um, you know, it has a familiar storyline that wouldn't be out of place, you know, in, in, 
in this in this time where it's like oh it's just you know drug drug dealers drug addiction you know where it's going from point A to point B to point C, but you become involved yeah. and you care. And people like Susan Saran and Willem Dafoe are a huge reason why this movie works so well. Totally. I think, I think that it's, yeah, I mean, I think that this, the, the world of it is very familiar, but yeah. it's the, it's the, it's the way it's told. It's the way it's performed. It's the little grace notes in the writing that kind of, I think maybe make it the best of the Schrader doing Schrader kind of, films like it's it's him doubling down on all the things that make him distinctive voice on his own um without and and, and maybe a better a better way of um a a better attempt at like doing his own taxi driver um in terms of like the the the, uh, urban alienated uh you know night worker um it it isn't taxi driver level achievement but it's 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 almost like he wants to remake his own script you know and like hardcore seems appropriate for that time and light sleeper almost feels appropriate for its time yeah what i was gonna say about that um i think it's interesting the use of the uh, the song driven score also uh michael bean of the call not a band i really know too much about but it has that kind of almost uh i don't want to say greek chorus but like that kind of like songs commenting on the action kind of accompaniment to the narrative. What, one thing I did want to mention was that uh, one of the films I had not seen in a long time that I revisited before we did this recording is uh, Bringing Out the Dead. And I don't, I have not read the novel. Is it Joe Connolly um, did? But there's a lot of light sleeper in Bringing Out the Dead. I just wonder That's how much of that was in was in the book or not. Cause I mean, you think about the Arquette character and like that same kind of like, she's falling back into yeah. drug addiction and like, she's found in the apartment of the drug dealer and someone falls to their death. And like that same kind of like, you know, there's a certain kind of exhausted quality to the protagonist because they just can't get a good night's sleep. And they're kind of haunting the streets of New York at night. And I don't know, there's a lot, more light sleeper in it than I know that people compare Bring Up the Dead to Taxi Driver, but it's really a lot closer to light sleeper. Yeah, I would say that for sure. I think, I mean, Bring Up the Dead, again, that closing shot, there's something about Schrader's closing shots, really, that work for me, 100%. I just, uh, I mean, again, yeah. a lot of it is, you know, um, borrowing from Brisson again, but I just, I really like it yeah. when two characters get a moment to breathe and reflect and come to terms with all the crazy shit that they've just been through. And to, you know, bring out the dead has one of my favorite, um, examples of that, uh, light sleeper. Unfortunately, again, what keeps it from being a masterpiece is, uh, I don't like the fact that, uh, a, a song with lyrics plays during the shootout. I just, I just, I don't know why that bothers me. It's just one of those things I immediately like became so conscious yeah. of. Like, why is why are you playing a song right now while there's a shootout in slow motion and it feels really cheesy? That's like the only thing yeah. that really bugged me. Yeah, I, I could see how that could definitely be off-putting. I mean, I think that that whole approach to the song score of Light Sleeper would probably be not to everyone's taste, but I, I, I think it reminds me almost like of, um, 
like an artier Michael Mann or something ah. like that, like that same kind of feel. Uh, and it almost even the way um, pop music is used in Drive, I, it reminds me a little bit of that too. But I, I don't know if that's one of Refn's influences on that film or not. But um, yeah, I, I think it's definitely the the the, the secret gem. I, of of the Schrader filmography, as far as like his directorial work, I, I, I wish more people knew it. I think, um, you know, I mean, after that, his career gets pretty tricky until well, for a, for a couple more years because uh, he follows it with Witch Hunt, which was like this made-for-cable comedy. <laughs> um, it was like a sequel to another film called Cast the Deadly Spell. It's about, like, like these detective comedies about, like, uh, this detective named Lovecraft, uh, who, uh, they they take place in a world of magic. Somehow this one missed Uh, me completely. I don't know why. It it was made for, I don't know if it was made for HBO. It was made for cable. I mean, it's on YouTube. It's not, it's not, I don't think it really works. Um, I don't think it's funny. The special effects are cheesy. Um, it, it, Schrader, oh, okay. th- this is like two comedies back to back, neither of which I think really work. Because he follows this with Touch, which is an Elmore Leonard adaptation. And that's him trying to throw his, ring, uh, his, his hat into the ring of the post-Tarantino uh, climate of 90s Miramax-style uh, films. And so it has like this really big star-studded cast but it's totally just so uh, uh, i can't I get know. behind skeet ulrich i just can't i mean i can't i can't yeah. scream that's about it but even in that he has moments yeah. where i'm just like uh <laughs> he i mean he's his his blankness doesn't necessarily hurt the character who's kind of meant to be hard to read but All it's right. I, I don't know. There's something. There's just something that feels. It's definitely one of my least favorite. I've tried twice with that one. I just something doesn't jive with me. But it's it's an interesting failure. But it is a failure. Um, the the next one he did was Affliction, which I think we already mentioned uh, had a very long road to getting made. But that's like his. I mean, I could see the argument for that being his best film as a as a director. I mean, I, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I. I would not argue with someone that felt that it was. It's funny. What was your take on that one? Cause I know that's it's funny because as I was watching it, I was like, this might be my favorite because I don't know what it is about this Russell Banks guy, but every time I was, for some reason I was thinking, did he do the ice storm? Because like with the sweet here after, and then this like no. capturing. Oh, okay. I was like, man, what's with this guy in winter? I mean, he's because I I can't stand it when it's super cold and there's too much snow. Um, I I mean, I prefer I prefer cold to to humidity, honestly. Like I think a lot of smart people do. But um, I I uh, when it, you know, when movies about emotional and physical and verbal abuse take place in the winter and 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 even something like sweet hereafter has even different types of abuse going on uh there's it just it just hits me hardcore i i can't uh, no pun intended i really yeah. this this to me could fit right at home next to like something like place beyond the pines where it's really about fathers and sons and legacy and the sins and addictions that we pass down to g- different generations I wasn't 100% sold 
at first to the idea of having Willem Dafoe as the narrator because like mm. I wa- that's from yeah, the book I, too I, yeah. I figured it out like okay it really is the story from his perspective but at the same time I was like we're so focused on Nick Nolte when is Willem Dafoe going to show up because it's like him telling the story but it's more or less he's just he's just like you know an ever present narrator who's I guess it's, I mean, it's, is it really just like him telling the story of what he thinks happened and how things played out? Right. He could be, um, yeah, he could be an unreliable narrator. I was I mean, thinking it's, that. It's, it, I mean, it's an interesting, I hadn't seen it in a long time. And it's funny you mentioned the, the, uh, the sweet hereafter, cause they had the same DP, ah. uh, Paul, I don't know how to say is it Sarossi, Sarossi, uh, shot both the Agoyan and Trader films. Uh, that same time period, same year, although the Egoyan came out uh, much earlier because it didn't run into that same uh, distribution problem at first. But uh, yeah, watching it again, it feels like it has the epic scope of a novel uh, compared to some other Paul Schrader films, even if it's a small town setting. Like it, I, I just never knew where it was going as far as like how characters are introduced. It's, it unfolds in a really interesting way. It does, in a um, way that I'm... I want to say it's a little shaggy in terms of the um, the flashbacks interspersed throughout, kind of um, interfering at certain times. That uh, I mean, I certainly didn't mind the way they were shot, and they really showcase exactly why Nolte has this sort of fractured mentality and is so haunted by his father's uh, abuse and everything. I, I, I certainly didn't mind those being inserted in there. I think um, some people sort of have cited it as being sloppy, just the choices to insert mm. them at certain times, and I didn't mind it. I thought it like gives us deeper context to the characters, and you understand why they are the way they are. And I mean, maybe it's hitting at home, literally, but uh, yeah, I, I maybe it's just like you know certain melodramas speak to me not necessarily because like oh i know what that's like it's just that my empathy level goes through the roof in something like this when people really can't shake what they've been through and it affects their present in such an intense manner and um the way this film provides its catharsis is one of those things where i'm torn because i'm like no don't do it because then you really become the monster that you don't want to become but at the same time like Yes, you should do it. It's like, you know, the, the the devil and the angel on my shoulders. Like one's telling me, yeah, let, you know, it's okay to want that want the father to die. Look at what a big of an asshole he is. But then the right. angel's like, no. Yeah. But then he becomes, you know, an even bigger monster, and you know, that's he's about to hit rock bottom and completely self destruct. So I love that back and forth. I almost have in my mind while you know, that's taking place. Um, it's a fucking depressing movie. Yeah. I think, I think that in a great way, I think that the darkness of it makes it a film that people feel, uh, not so inclined to return to. So it doesn't get discussed as much as it did at the time that it was getting all the award nominations. And I think it actually is one of the few Paul Schrader films that made its budget back in theaters. Um, but it, it, it's, it really kind of was a big movie for Nolte also, because I think his... Did he get nominated for it? Yeah, I know Coburn won. I, 
I feel like he did get nominated for it because it's one of his best performances. Yeah, well, it, I, I, I may be misremembering this. Um, so, I feel like I had heard at the time that I mean, Nolte was a big star uh, already for like mainstream films, but his health was going into decline, and his doctor had told him this might all be bullshit. But what I heard was that his doctor told him like, you know, you're you know, your your heart can't take all of these, like, essentially, like, I'm paraphrasing, like, your heart can't take all these lousy movies you're making. You need to do something, you know, that's good for you and good for your your heart. And uh, whether or not that's just a, uh, a romanticized way of saying, like, you know, he needed to make some, some passion project art films, you know, after doing, uh, you know, kind of hollow studio films or not, but like he went through like a mini renaissance at that point in his career affliction by being the, you know, maybe his key role as an actor. Um, I think, but it might be, I mean, when people talk about him as a serious talent, I mean, he had good films before. I mean, there's one that you should look into uh, called who'll stop the rain from the seventies. I've been meaning to see that for the longest time. It's It's one of those movies that my, my dad had like a taped copy of like, he taped it off of HBO and it's it was like sitting, you know, uh, on our shelves for the longest time, and I never ever watched it. Oh yeah, and and I want to. It, really you'll bad. like it. I'm pretty sure you'll like it. But it's uh, it, but he, uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's that performance in Affliction is so towering. I mean, and Coburn is also great, and, and like you know, the supporting cast is like Sissy Spacek, Willem Dafoe. It's like the a the A team of like yeah, strong strong actors, and uh, and it just pisses me off because I'm like. Nolte, you got Sissy Spacek trying to help you. I mean, oh, if you I have know. Sissy Spacek trying to help you, I mean, it's so frustrating. It's, it's like have, it is like having an angel there saying, "Come on, th- come this way. I'll, I'll I'll take care of you. Everything's going to be okay." You go with Sissy Spacek, dude. Yeah. I mean, I I think that th- there's a testament to this film, really uh, showcasing what how some men really respond to emasculation and powerlessness. Yeah. They just like they can't handle it. They they really react violently towards that, and you know even if it's your own flesh and blood and you know people that you've loved and grown up with your whole life, it doesn't matter. You're going to react, and I think that um, it's like a ticking time bomb of a movie that when it finally goes off, it feels justified, and it's it's sad, but it's also like yeah that 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 was meant to happen. You kind of almost expect that to happen. Yeah. But it feels real. It feels like this This is a real story about real people. And I felt that way about Sweet Hereafter. Sweet Hereafter is a movie I could probably watch once a year, even if it is really super fucking depressing. And I can't wait to talk about it next year. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen that in a long time. It's I love the shit out of Sweet Hereafter. Like, that became one of my top 100 favorite movies after I watched it. Yeah, um, I remember it. Aff- yeah. Affliction, I don't know if it's as strong, but I still... In terms of like a, a melodrama done right with great performances and Schrader sort of like putting the camera where it needs to be, not like being really flashy and showy, he sort of just lets the story tell itself in a way I think he decided, you know what, this is a Russell Banks story and I'm just going to shoot the actors and let them do their thing. Yeah, I guess I guess around the time, maybe after Comfort of Strangers, his visual style becomes a lot less ostentatious. Like it becomes yeah. a lot closer to the Schrader of if not blue collar, maybe hardcore. Like it, it becomes, it becomes the well-composed classical Hollywood film. 
um, which he's starting to break away from again in these kind of more problematic newer films. But I think um, he has talked about the fact that he feels like the kind of classical screen grammar that he observed his whole career as far as, you know, not crossing the line and, you know, uh, the, the right kind of um, cutting back and forth to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, the, the, the strategy of avoiding continuity errors by having shots match. Like, yeah. a lot of that he feels like in the post latter day Tony Scott era kind of like shooting cutting style that has become more prevalent in Hollywood that the way he grew up making films is no longer relevant. And uh, that think from Adam resurrected on there's, there's chances being taken with form, whether or not they're in the aid of successful films ultimately is, you know, a different matter, but the, uh, you know, and maybe he's working with less money or more pressures, uh, different pressures, but the, the classical style of, of storytelling, I think affliction, you know, is one of the best, in, in, of the ones that are not taking like the kind of radical chances of a Mishima. Um, he did uh, Forever Mine after that, um, which is, that's one that had even more problems than Affliction because it ultimately got just sold the cable. It didn't even come out in theaters. That one looks like almost, well, William Freakin did Jude, or wait, Jade. Yeah. And I never, I never need to see that. Forever Mind just almost feels like I don't I don't ever need to see that. That yeah, just looks it's, like a it's not, made for cable kind of sex it, erotic thriller thing. It's him trying to make a uh yeah like a, a a a romantic melodrama throwback kind of like almost circian but thriller kind of thing. In in a way it almost has echoes of uh the script he wrote for uh De Palma, the obsession script. Um is but it's uh, it has the the play on vertigo and all that. But the um, you could skip it. I mean, it's it's interesting. I will. It's interesting. I mean, in the context of his film, and it is one that he wrote because the, as the as the filmography you know goes to the later years, he does not write as many of them himself. That's true. Um, one I saw in the theater that really unnerved me uh, was a movie called Autofocus, mm. and. You know, knowing that this was a true story, actually written by the guy who wrote uh, Zodiac, I believe. Oh. Um, yeah, Robert Graysmith. Yeah, he. I think you know he was the cartoonist. He was. He was who's I, I believe who Jake Gyllenhaal played in, oh, in Zodiac. I did not know that. Um, he wrote this um, interesting biography, I guess. Um, kind of, it's another unsolved mystery or an unsolved murder. Yeah, and nobody really knows how Bob Crane was murdered or if he was murdered. Well, obviously he was murdered, but nobody knows who did it. And, uh, it's really a great movie about addiction. Yeah. And, you know, there's certainly, there's been like, I, I tried watching this movie recently called thanks for asking or whatever it was. It's got like Gwyneth Paltrow and Mark Ruffalo and it's about sex addiction Mm. and sort of trying to turns it into a light goofy comedy and, you know, turns group therapy sessions into uh, like a farce, and I hated it so much I turned it off. <laughs> I never heard of it. It's I think I don't want I want to call I want to say it's called Thank You for Asking, but I'm not sure. Um, but it's it's awful. Okay. And this movie, because like any addiction, like you can insert any addiction in, into any movie, and I'm already on board just because, um, like food's always been a struggle for me with like trying to eat right, and I found myself like 
binge eating at some point in my life. So I felt like, yes, I probably am a food addict of some kind. (laughs) So whenever I see movies about addicts, I automatically can empathize. And, but this movie is just so, ugh, and creepy. And I mean, I remember at the time, a colleague and friend really thought this was a tame movie. Like, he should have gone darker and crazier because the actual story is darker and crazier. Like, you know, Bob Crane was doing much more insidious things sexually than is represented in this film. Yeah. But I don't know if that's necessary. You certainly get a sense of his exploits and how uh, destructive they were and, you know, what kind of path he was going down uh, in this movie. And here, Willem Dafoe plays a character named John Carpenter, which is just really funny to me. Yeah. It's interesting because the style of that one, it, it, the style almost degrades along with the character. Yeah. Because it, 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 and I, totally. which, is, which is a conscious choice on Schrader's part, but like it, it opens almost, and it's almost kind of like cartoonish and bright. And, and then by the end, it's like a different, it's a it's different. It's very grainy of, yeah. towards the end. Yeah. I, I mix this up in my head sometimes um, with, uh, I mean, I, don't, I, I can keep them separated, but the, uh, the it's, it swims together with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind for me, which came out around the same time as another kind of like, uh, I, I just remember like a certain kind of seediness to like this crazy real life kind of, so it was at the Chuck Barris film. Yeah. That. I love that movie. Actually. Yeah, I like that movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I, I for some reason, I don't know why I connected in my my memory. But uh, I think I think Autofocus is my favorite of the latter day Schrader films. Um, That's by, probably true. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I I just think it's a lot of fun. It's it's very engaging, and it's it returns to those kind of themes of like degradation and people just putting themselves in a situation that's really unhealthy. But uh, you know, I, I I think it's 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 a fun ride to hell. <laughs> Yeah, it's else. it's ultimately very sad. Yeah. And like you know the 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 relationship between uh John Carpenter and Bob Crane is really interesting. Um because like at one point, you know, Bob Crane is so repulsed by the fact that you know his friend put his hand on his ass during an orgy. Yeah. And like you know, and just there's just little touches throughout this movie, and in some weird way too, it it it, it hints at just how immediately fixated we get on uh, recording sex with new technology, and like that's not the thesis of the movie at all, but it's there, and I love yeah. that there's like a mirroring of the scene in Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer where uh, you know. Otis and Henry are watching the movie of their murder and almost getting off on it. Yeah. And in this, it's just just like they're watching, you know, them having sex from like months ago and both jerking off to it. And I just, it's really like, and, but the music that's playing also makes it very sad. So it's clearly like they are addicts and they can't stop doing what they do. So it's not joyful anymore. Right. So, yeah, it's weird. Like it, it does start off really bouncy and kind of upbeat, and like, oh boy, look at all the breasts, yay! Um, yeah. And then, it, and then it really just, yeah, it's another self a portrait of self destruction that ends with a really in- gruesome death. That I want to say that the both um, the author of the book and Paul Schrader insinuate that uh, John Carpenter 
is responsible for the death of Bob Crane. Yeah. Even I mean, though it was never proven. Yeah, I mean, he, they, they, they feel like he's the most reasonable suspect. Sure. But, I mean, it could have been the jealous husband or boyfriend of any number of the people that, you know, he had sex with kind of casually. So it could be, it could be someone else. It, but, you know, it, it's, it makes for a better movie if, if there's some certainty, at least on the filmmaker's side of it. <laughs> and uh, Greg Kinnear's great. He's fantastic um, in it. It, it. It's it's a shame that I mean he's definitely someone that isn't taken that seriously as a dramatic actor. I don't think not anymore. Uh, not anymore. Like after after as good as it gets, I was kind of like I'm on board with Greg Kinnear. I think he's 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 a great actor. Um, yeah. It's almost like I was championing him with that, and in some not necessarily like in the same fashion at all, but. After uh, Mean Girls came out, I was like, okay, Lindsay Lohan is awesome, and she's going to do great things, and maybe one day she's going to give us an amazing dramatic performance, and we're all going to be blown away. Um, <laughs> and it, I still think that's going to happen somehow. I want to believe it. Believe it or not, um, you know, this, this, this goes to show how crazy I, I became at one point, but, uh, you know, th- there was a time where I was like, okay, reality, reality TV, TV, I give in. I'm going to watch all the food shows. I'm going to do this almost like as an experiment on myself. And, of course, with my uh, addictive personality, I got suckered into a lot of things. And I, I, I watched the um, Oprah's produced show on Lindsay Lohan, where it's just like following her around for, I believe it was like 10 episodes. And it was fascinating and sad. And, uh, again, another portrayal of... Uh, narcissism and self-destruction that uh, you couldn't take your eyes away from and part of me is like come on get your shit together because there is a great actress there yeah i i reminded of like what happened to drew barrymore at one point yeah, in her yeah, career yeah. and i always just assumed that once someone is really famous i mean so long as they have the capacity to be uh, brought back. People love those kind of redemptions. I mean, think about Robert Downey Jr. I mean, you know, think about like any number of you know celebrities that have very high profile breakdowns uh, with drugs and uh, erratic behavior and unprofessional behavior. Um, you know, and she was a jerk. I mean, she. Uh, a friend of mine worked on a Gary Marshall movie that she did, and she was just showing up super late with an entourage and being really like un professional and really uh you know uncaring of other people's uh you know responsibilities in a way yeah, that like I don't doubt that. isn't surprising to me that she got blacklisted maybe um you know to the point where you know Schrader and Bredis and Ellis were able to get her uh quite easily and I think that really kind of helped and hurt the canyons and that all of a sudden it became like a, a lot more attention was put on this very small picture, but at the same time, it was like all the worst kind of attention. Sad but true, you know. Well, yeah. we got about a half hour to go. Um, yeah. If you really want to briefly touch upon his uh, Exorcist prequel, feel free. You know, I don't. Ha- I don't have a lot to really uh, to add about uh, Dominion, other than it was interesting, just in terms of film history that such a, a circumstance would even happen that uh you know the, the the production was taken away like i mean he finished the film i yeah. believe uh, or mostly finished it because the final film um i mean basically has music that was given to him as favors by people like Badalamenti, and then the uh 
I don't think all the effects were finished. I don't think it was completely like I think he was working with like almost no money to finish it in a way that was releasable. And I think it shows. I think it has some really terrible special effects. I mean, his commentary even kind of cops to some scenes not working. Um, it's an interesting failure. I think the one... You can find visual references to things that, like, oh, this is Paul Schrader. Like, it has a shot that is totally lifted from the searchers. It has um, it has a death that quotes the, uh, the martyrdom huh. of St. Sebastian, which is the uh, same image that uh, Mishima gets kind of aroused by in, uh, in that film. Um, it's... I think I think the most interesting film of the later Schrader films, and it's a really weird, problematic film. I think is uh, Adam Resurrected, which is I I don't know that you would like it, but it's it's got one of Jeff Goldblum's best performances, and it's a really fucking weird movie um, about this guy who was this like almost like circus clown uh, who during the Holocaust. Uh, Willem Dafoe plays this Nazi who acquires him essentially as like the rest of his family is being sent to the camps and uh, basically breaks him down into behaving like a dog. Like he, to, like he uses him as a dog uh, just, 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 just to degrade him and like it basically damages him so that like in the present day, like he's in this kind of mental, uh, like, like he's in this, in this home for people that are like going through like various forms of like, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or like, like emotional scars from the Holocaust. And he's, you know, he's like this kind of lively comic sexual kind of man, but he's also deeply fucked up because Willem Dafoe was using him as a dog for all these, you know, months while his family was murdered and, or, uh, you know, or, 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 you know, debased in the camps. Um, and so, it's it's an interesting premise and it's very bold and it's got a lot of brilliant stylistic flourishes but it's such a bizarre premise that it, 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 it's it's jarring and it's based on a novel uh Yoram is it Kanyuk? I don't I don't know how to say his last name but it was like this Israeli novel and I guess it had like maybe come out around the same time I think like like uh when flew of the cuckoo's nest like it has like this use of like really black humor and surreal kind of to, to, to make, you know, to make this point about, uh, you know, the dehumanization of Jews in the Holocaust. Uh, but it's, it's a peculiar film. If you ever do get a chance to see it, it's, it's not what I, it's easy to recommend, but it's one year you'll have a hard time forgetting. And it's maybe one of Jeff Goldblum's, like you could make an argument for it being his best performance. I don't know. It's 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 definitely an amazing uh, portrayal by him. Um, the- and not to uh, yeah. And fairly recently, I I mentioned to you that uh, you know Brett Easton Ellis. Yes. I I think I like his podcast the most out of anything else he's ever done, because like he almost embraces narcissism in a way that I find kind of charming. And, like, his little monologue preludes to each guest are so rambly and so insightful, and they're, but, they're all, but they're also a good sort of textbook example of what we were talking about before we started recording of inserting yourself into the conversation. Right. That I'm always torn between, like, come on, man, just get to the guest. But I'm also, like, fascinated by... 
he he just embraces this weird self-absorbed LA lifestyle and I just I I've tried so many, I've tried with like less than zero I've tried with a movie that he wrote called The Informers I yeah, think which I know even he thinks is bad it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Yeah. Period. I've never seen that and, one. And uh, the only thing I can get behind of his is the rules of attraction. And I think that is mainly because you get to see, like, um, you know, Dawson from Dawson's Creek act psychotic and Fred Savage shoot heroin. And yeah. just, like, the, the, the energy of that movie and the sort of directorial flourishes and style of that movie, it's got such... Yeah, uh, I, a visceral I, rush to the whole thing. It's yeah, a great. Really it's one of the best edited to, uh, movies of that to time. To revisit that since um, getting into Roger, the Brett, Roger uh, Avery. Ethan Ellis podcast, um, I've actually got both American Psycho and Rules of Attraction over by my projector. I just haven't had time to watch them uh, yet, but they're yeah. I, well, American Psycho is a great movie. Um, not so much on the book. Yeah, well, it's funny. And it's funny uh, you mentioned Rules of Attraction, the film, because your old uh, favorite Michelle Williams uh, had seen a, um, I guess maybe an early preview or cut of of that film, and told me that she felt like it was like a little, a little much, or like a little too. I don't know, maybe just like seeing Dawson in that role was uh, was a little bit yeah. much for her. Uh, you get to you get to see Dawson wipe his ass and do all sorts of crazy things. Yeah. And- I don't know why it's 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 one of those movies I'm like I probably shouldn't like this like yeah but at the same time it just works because the director has balls in the same way like I've said about Paul Thomas Anderson um, just you're just going for it man and you don't care you're gonna do this insane Amsterdam sequence which I just love the shit out of I think like I I would just tell people if you want to watch Rules of Attraction in like two minutes. You can watch this one sequence that takes place in Amsterdam that I think is just one of the most brilliantly edited things. Um, but here we go with the canyons. <laughs> I almost, you know what? That prelude felt like Brett Easton Ellis in a way, just like a really long-winded build-up to our review of the canyons, which I think is pure unadulterated shit. Um, it's ugly. It's dead. It's empty. I just don't know. <laughs> like these, these. People are more like objects. They're not really human. The way they talk is very vacant and dull. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- it's just there's no interior life through this entire film. It's, it's very just. It is very plastic. I know, and I guess you're trying to reflect that. I guess you're trying to reflect that this is a world that probably someone like Lindsay Lohan knows very well. And Breston Easton, Brett Easton Ellis obviously knows very well. Yeah. I think Schrader describes Brett Easton Ellis as like uh, pretty, pretty people doing terrible things in really nice rooms <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I, I think for, for, for me, I liked it more the first time I saw it going back to it. You know, now it's had, um, you know, a, a couple of years now, I guess, of bad word of mouth and bad reviews and everyone treating it like a joke. So I, I was curious if it would play differently knowing now that it's thought of as this as this fiasco. And, you know, I, I think that without the element of surprise, it just grew weaker for me, which is always the case. Um, it, it actually... Um, it almost seems more interesting now in theory than anything I would probably ever 
choose to see again. I mean, it, I think it doesn't, I don't think it really works, but I, I think I would put it, for me, I would put alongside Touch as like an interesting failure. I don't, I don't hate it as much as, as Dying of the Light, um, which I think is really his worst film. But uh, I, I think it's definitely, I mean, for him to make a film with Kickstarter funds and cast it with Let It Cast and use social media promotion, like at this point in his career, it's, it's curious and it's, I can't tell if, if, if it's, if it's uh, refreshing to see him mixing it up or sad that this is where his career is. I, I can see it both ways. Um, but I think that we had talked about this, really like that kind of marriage between like the, uh, the kind of world of less than zero uh, or rules of attraction with the kind of, uh, you know, chilly alienated feeling of something like American gigolo, like American psycho meets American gigolo. Like that's interesting on paper to me, but the actual execution, I think it's just, I don't know. Something just feels like it feels too much like a trashy TV soap opera in a way that it's not. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't find anything compelling about it. And the way they talk is just so dead inside. Like I'm going to Paul Springs this weekend and why don't you come? Aren't you going with Billy? No, you mean me and Gina? No, just huh? Me and like the the way they talk is just really lifeless. Like they have no yeah. affectation whatsoever. Oh, yeah. Like oh my god, it's all about sex and drugs and that's it. Okay, good night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I. I mean, I don't. I don't have a problem with that part of it. I but I I can see how that would definitely be off putting. Um, I. I I I don't know. There's just something. There's just something kind of like, like when when the James Dean character is is becoming overridden with obsession. I just don't. It doesn't, no. it doesn't. It doesn't register. Like I don't think the intended emotions actually break through. I don't think he's bad when he's just being a smug prick. But it only just. It starts to feel like closer to some like cruel intentions than like a Paul Schrader. Yeah, why wasn't Ryan Philippipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipipip
inadvertently celebratory just because it's still dealing with Hollywood glamour, like still glamorizing these assholes, even though the film is treating them like assholes. So I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I I think about, and in fact, the Brett Easton Ellis thinks that Maps of Cyrus is one of Cronenberg's best recent films is, you know, indicative of the fact that like, yeah, there's some, there's some kind of language there, but it's, I I don't know. It's definitely near the bottom. I actually would love, I can't wait to, I'm hoping it'll happen at some point. I want to interview Brad Easton Ellis because most of the people I've interviewed, I love and I love their work and I, you know, have a tendency to, you know, um, just, you know, go on and on about how much I love their work sometimes while interviewing them. It would be great to interview somebody whose work I, I struggle with and kind of have issues with, but not necessarily like challenge them and be like, you know what? I think your movie sucks. You know, I wouldn't be like that. I would just have thoughtful questions that I would pose to them to maybe make me or shed some light on maybe why it doesn't connect with me. Or maybe if they explain something, I would connect with it more. Yeah. I Um, I like, I wouldn't say the canyons falls under that category. Right. Yeah. I think it's, I think he, I mean, to hear his show, he's he's such a passionate cinephile, and yeah, and he he has a way of speaking that uh, like he, he's someone that's comfortable with language, and I, I think right. that I it's I don't always agree with his particular taste, but I I, I think it's fun to hear him uh, talk about film in a way that I was surprised how much I liked it because I was you know I mean I was aware of his work as a, as a writer, but I didn't occur to me that he would be a natural at, at podcasts. Um, I know, right? I mean, listen, you gotta, everybody should listen to the Alex Ross Perry episode with Brett Easton Ellis. Cause it's just kind of, they're kind of two peas in a pod in a way, like just the way they, they work well together um, in terms of being in the same room and uh, sharing their love of movies. I think they have a great conversation. Did you hear the one speaking of the Kenyans with James Dean? I uh, don't think so. It's worth a listen, even if you hate the film that they ultimately made. Um, it's it okay. says a lot about that kind of set, and in a way, Schrader must have been reminded of the blue collar set when uh, dealing with these, you know, all these egos and these temperamental kind of behavior. But uh, it's 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 definitely like it, it's probably you know probably easier to recommend than the canyons itself. Um, yeah, and for you know Schrader, he lo- he loves exploring the dark side of human nature, which is something I gravitate towards in film in general to help understand why we have such um, an inexplicable darkness within us. And I gotta say, Dying of the Light. Yeah, what was that? I mean, I know that it's clearly it was re-edited in a way that. Um, you know, left both Nicolas Cage and Paul Schrader very pissed off to where they disowned the film. Um, but I wasn't, I did not sense exactly what the intention was other than let's make a glorified Homeland episode. But for some reason, the protagonist also has dementia. Um, yeah. It's a very confused movie to me. Yeah, I know that beyond the fact that it was recut, it was also scored without his participation and the color palette was also... Uh, altered to be more conventional. So I don't even know what it would have looked like uh, visually. Um, So, um, yeah, I think Nicolas Cage, 
there's a problem in it um, because that fake ear looks. It is almost Wicker Man territory. I've not seen a lot of the films that people hate about him, um, so I I don't have a lot of point of reference. I know that he's he's kind of taken on like this Brando style kind of career uh, self destruction <laughs> period where he's he's just taking paycheck films and not taking them seriously and being really hammy and ridiculous in them or at least that's that's my understanding of what he's doing i mean he'll he'll do a film like joe the david gordon green film or like he'll do um i think even the herzog film i mean however over the top that is the uh, bad lieutenant i think he takes it seriously on some level i can't tell with this um if he's deliberately trying to undermine the film or not because it's it's such a uh I mean, the way that, like, he'll, like, shift his body language to show off that fake ear, it's so embarrassing um, that it, it, it makes it very hard uh, to take it seriously when it's, you know, trying to be earnest. And then it's just, it's such a muddled and confused place that it all goes to. Uh, I, I don't, I can't tell how much of that, I mean, if the pieces were put together in a more coherent way, if that would help or not, I really don't know. I mean, I know that... You know, Schrader can't talk about it right now. I'm sure, I hope that one day he writes his autobiography and can talk about it. Because uh, I'd be curious to know. And they're, they're working together again, supposedly. Uh, Nicolas Cage and uh, Paul Schrader on a, a film called Dog Eat Dog. Um, so I don't think that, I, I would like to think that, that Schrader wasn't upset with uh Cage's performance in it. I mean, I think that he even liked him in Bringing Out the Dead, which he was upset about Nicolas Cage being cast in that film, the Scorsese film, because it was written to be a young, like someone like Edward Norton's age. And huh. I think I don't think he feels like the casting works for the character being at that age in his life, the way he envisions it. Um, but uh, yeah, Dying in the Light, I thought I thought it was silly uh, and 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 awkward, um, but. You know, I, I, again, I don't know. I don't know what his film Untampered with would have looked like if it had been better or, or not. I mean, you know, I, I I haven't seen the Exorcist film that Rennie Harlan made on the sets and with some of the same cast. I, Schrader's version doesn't you know isn't some lost classic. So I don't even know that his director's cut of Dying in the Light would have been any better. But uh, I don't know what the the intent behind this story really is like. Are we? Is, is it trying to be a political commentary of sorts when you have lines like, you got your head so far up Obama's ass that all you can see is the shit? Well, that is one of the worst lines ever. Well, it's, um, it's, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, and it's weird because it's like, it's like a poor man's mix of Rolling Thunder and Zero Dark Thirty because it's like yeah. that same kind of like... Revenge. Revenge of the traumatized war vet... Plus, it's the revenge fantasy of killing Bin Laden thing, right? Um, it's, it's, but it's just but he so, has dementia. Why? Why does he have to have dementia on top of it? You know, on some level, I think that he must just have a perverse attraction to the idea. Like, like what if, what if you know, when the military showed up at Bin Laden's door, like they just were debilitated by like some kind of like fantasy or something like I don't know I don't know what he's thinking with that and I don't even know like what Nicholas Winding Refn and Harrison Ford would have done with that same story I don't either it's yeah, yeah it's it's hard to imagine because I mean 
Refn is arguably like you know at the peak of his powers, and you know I think that like for him to take that material, I just don't know what he would do with it. I'm sure it'd be a lot more visually stylized. Um, I don't know if he. I don't, I don't see Harrison Ford making those kind of decisions uh, that Cage makes. Uh, the eccentricity of the performance. I just think that Cage went, oh, he has dementia. Well, then I can act as crazy as I want. Yeah, um, I can deliver this line in such an ostentatious manner, it's appropriate for the character. Right. And, in contra- and in contrast to that, you decide to cast Anton Yelchin as a CIA agent? Like, I, I, I just... This movie is, like, a train wreck in every way. Like, even the way it starts, it's just, you know, the credits are rolling while he's being tortured, and um, it's, it's, it's something you have to see to believe, though. Like, it's one of those movies where I... I don't want people to see. I, I want people to see Light Sleeper and Blue Collar and Affliction more than anything else. But at the same time, if you really want to see the complete opposite end of the spectrum where a movie can go wrong, like if you're teaching a film class and you can show, like, this is what you should not do, um, or this is how a studio can fuck with you, kind of a scenario, you can watch this movie and be like, well, uh, I'm discouraged now. Um, I don't never. I don't know if I want to make a movie. <laughs> like there, yeah. I mean, especially if you if you have studio involvement. Um, to you know, to this day, they're still insisting on these kinds of changes. Like, what what, what were they thinking to think that this was a good version? Um, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that they just took whatever Schrader made. They saw that they had to turn it into a more conventional action film. But with whatever they did in that process, it's just it's it's such a jagged construction towards the end too. Like the way events unfold, it just feels totally sloppy. Yeah, which is not something I would say about the majority of Schrader's films. Um, I'm yeah. really glad that you know after seeing Blue Collar, I just sort of you know the light bulb went off and, and going. You know, I know Paul Schrader's work obviously as a writer, but you know exploring his filmography was pretty much a treat. Like, I mean, obviously there were a couple of low lows, and sure. yeah. I, I. but at the same time I was like, well, I, ha- I have to watch these to know, you know, what an interesting failure could be. And <laughs> I will say that, you know, The Canyons, even though I hated it, it's an interesting failure. Yeah. Um, Dying of the Light is not interesting, but no. it's a failure that I think people can see if they want to see what happens when studios get involved or when a movie is taken away from you and um, how acting can go completely wrong. So Yeah, he's, he's interesting because he, of that generation, he never quite had, he never got to the point like Scorsese or Spielberg or even De Palma where there's like a certain kind of, he could be expected to land work for higher gigs that that made it out there in the world. Like I think at a certain point like he just even though he's like someone that was like very pragmatic and like would always would try to make a hit for people, I think I think he's just seen as like a maybe out of touch and, you know, someone that will make an art film out of your potentially commercial property and therefore can't be trusted with the money. But he's he's tenacious about trying new technology, trying new techniques. Like, his next project, supposedly, is Life on the Other Side, this 10-part web series inspired by La Dolce Vita. It might, be, <laughs> it might be good, it might be bad, but it's like he's still... 
he's still trying to fight for a kind of chancy uh, re- relevance. And, you know, you look yeah. at someone like w- William Friedkin, and, you know, I mean, I think, I think everyone kind of assumed he was done as a, as a major force. And whatever you think of, you know, some of the recent films like The uh, Killer Joe, like, Bug is one of his best films. And, like, that's something that, like, nobody saw coming. So right. you can never really be sure when he has, like, another affliction you know, in him, I, I'd, I'd like to think that he has one more major film, you know, I, I'm optimistic that he does because he seems to have the uh, enthusiasm. He doesn't seem jaded and cynical despite having horrible experiences, like not to mention like, you know, the psychological damage from his childhood, the difficulty working with some of these actors, the studios fucking with his movies, and yet this guy, he perseveres, and that's kind of what I think most artists should aspire to. Like, even if you're getting kicked left and right like that throughout your life, um, believe in what you do. And I think he does. And, yeah. you know, like, even though, like, the, the commentary for Blue Collar, you can tell, like, he's not necessarily, like, the most um, vocal guy in terms of, like, talking throughout the entire film. He's certainly not a Tarantino. No. Um, but, but, his, but his commentaries. The best ones, like the taxi driver ones, I mean, uh, he's he's a very lucid uh, yeah. thinker and articulate in a way that not a lot of great filmmakers aren't as articulate as he is when talking about film. Like that, that 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 academic background, that background as a critic, he's still a critic. Like he still writes interesting pieces from time to time. And you know, you, if you have a film, even a film that I'm not that keen on, like Tiny Furniture, he appears on that. A, randomly um, to, to as you know the same way he appears on the pickpocket release from criterion and it's like he's more interesting than a lot of those talking heads i mean he's he's i mean i love bogdanovich to death but he, like he he's he's a better thinker than you know some of the other filmmakers that were critics first agreed um, i'm i'm optimistic for the next paul schrader project i i won't go in being like oh boy this is going to be great for you know everything in the future, but I think, I mean, going back, this is one of the uh, more interesting directors to explore. Like, I highly recommend any cinephile if you haven't, go ahead, binge watch on some Paul Schrader. You'll never be bored. Like yeah. every film is interesting in its own way, even when it doesn't completely succeed. Um, and you know, if you want to be astonished, especially. Um, Visually, Mishima is a must-watch. Obviously, Criterion released it for a reason. So, um, Paul Schrader is full of surprises, and that's what I look for in most of my filmmakers. And he's uh, not necessarily like in my top ten, top twenty of all time, but um, he's made some amazing works of art that I think um, people should be aware of at this point. And yeah. I'm glad that we got to revisit and talk about him and. Yeah, I'm glad that you that you enjoyed some of the ones that you hadn't seen before. I was surprised you hadn't seen Affliction back in the '90s, but me I'm too. Glad that, yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting career. Like, and it, it, it there's at least three decades where there's some strong work coming out of it. That uh, you know, I I don't know. I I feel like he gets underrated because he'll always be the taxi driver guy or the raging bull guy for like a lot of people. But uh, you know, or American Gigolo. You know, it, but it's. It, there's a there's a consistency for a good a good long run of it you know I mean it's not you know it's not Woody Allen consistent you know what in his heyday but it's definitely it's definitely a career that 
I think is underrated because yeah. he gets overshadowed by people like Scorsese's career. But uh, I completely know. agree. I, and like I said, if you want to see some um, sort of touchstones from great directors like Tarantino, you have to see Blue Collar. There's just a lot of uh, seeds being planted there for future filmmakers to take note on. And I think um, I'm ready to give my top three as challenging yeah. as it's going to be for, I think, my third slot. I don't know. It's uh, I'm going to go with number three. Oh man, it's tough. Like I think a top four would be easier, but I'm gonna go just, my top three right now is gonna be Affliction at number three, Light Sleeper at number two, and number one is Blue Collar. Okay. Although it's, I really want to put Hardcore at number three. <laughs> it's 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 really difficult. Yeah, I think I think for me. I, it's really tough because there's several I like equally. Um, yeah. That more more than three I like equally. But I will say, for the sake of giving you a top three, I would say three is Blue Collar, two is American Gigolo, and one is Light Sleeper. That's a, yeah. That's that's a good list. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. But leaving off Mishima, Life in Four Chapters, Affliction. Hardcore. I mean, it's tough. I mean, even things like Cat People and Autofocus, I think, have a lot of interesting quality to them. And you know, I, I mean, the the only masterpiece on his resume, you know, are the Scorsese films. But even his uh, right. something like Rolling Thunder, which got rewritten after he left the project, that's it. That holds up as a great revenge film, even if he doesn't like it. Absolutely, um, also one of Tarantino's favorites. Clearly, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we didn't even talk about things like the Mosquito Coast or uh, we didn't even really talk about Raging Bull uh, or Last Temptation of Christ. Like, there's a lot of interesting yeah, films. This on is his... more Director's Club than Writer's Club, but. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah, there's, you know, if you if you like him as a writer of those films, you can explore the, uh, the directorial efforts of Schrader. But uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely what I'm glad that you uh, suggested. And. Uh, I don't know, I'm glad that we, we, we don't have a crash on this episode as far as what... <laughs> we, you know, I, I, I'm glad not to have to yeah. defend the canyons. I'm glad, I'm glad you don't think the canyons is a masterpiece. I'd be really scared. Um, yeah. You know, for my next episode, it's not going to be till the first week of October in terms of a director-centric. Because, um, you know, October is when we get a little scary around here. And uh, I think, um, you know, just to whet your appetites... For October, the two directors that I'm planning on focusing on are Stuart Gordon and Toby Hooper. Uh, so those will be great. I believe I've got Daniel Baldwin and Gabe Powers for those episodes. Nice. And um, we're going to figure out specifically when we'll do our sort of film festival roundup. I'm not going to my film festival till the end of October. Or it's like, it's October 21st, I think. So. Okay. It, it, we'll see if it, it's, we'll see if we can work out a way to like make it so it's not all a Bill Ackerman monologue episode. Like, because that's yeah. the thing about when Kurt does his TIFF um, roundup for the Cinecast, it is literally like an hour and a half, maybe two hours of Kurt just talking the entire time because Andrew has not seen any of the movies at TIFF yet, so it's hard to like 
make comments throughout. Right. Uh, so. I I will try not to do that when we when we talk about them. I uh, but I will be taking notes and I'll I'll have some thoughts prepared by the time you're uh, you're done with your film festival, so we can maybe switch back and forth. That's maybe. what I would like. Yeah. Ideally, so we'll see. I'm uh, I'm curious to see how that goes. But I think uh, the next episode you'll be on for will be late November, early December. It could get juggled around, but uh, I'm dying to do Kislowski. And yeah. uh, I know you volunteered for that. So, oh, yeah. yeah, I'm happy to do that one. I, I, it's, uh, yeah, I have not seen some of those films in a long time. Uh, so I'm excited to revisit them. It's going to take, yeah, the, you going through the Decalogue. You don't have and, to watch the whole Decalogue. <laughs> I know you probably will. but uh, Oh, yeah, I saw it in the theater. Oh, wow. Um, thankfully it was broken up over five weeks, so it was not like a, uh, endurance test, but that's, I mean, a masterpiece and that's, that, that's his key work to me, but we'll get into that at another time. Indeed. <laughs> um, you kind of have a blog, right? Yeah, I have not updated it this year. I will be after the film festival. Um, the Autorist Trap, I don't have the URL in front of me, but, uh. Yeah, it's autoristrap.blogspot.com or, yeah. yeah, I think so. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I actually probably write more on Letterbox now since you convinced me to join that. But even that, I don't write that. <laughs> One of us. One of yeah. us. Yeah, I, I have. Um, that's also people. You know, in case you need your Patrick Rapole fix, that's where you can go to is Letterbox slash Patrick Rapole. I think you should be going there because he writes reviews. I mostly just rate. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I think you should be I, reading I, his reviews. Yeah, yeah, he's he's an active presence on there, and uh, yeah. I yeah, hopefully he'll hopefully you can you can talk him into showing up on more future episodes of Directors. He'll Club be too. on uh, he'll be on for Michael Curtiz, which I think is also my last episode of the year in December. Oh, good luck with the top three on that. Uh huh. I know. <laughs> I'm, that's one I'm kind of like, oh boy, that's going to be a daunting one in terms of trying to watch as much as I can, but uh, I'll do my best. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a he's he's a big he's a big time. So thanks for being on the show, Bill. Um, oh, thank you for having. Yeah, me. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll definitely be having you on again, probably twice more this year, if not three times. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You can find us, of course, at directorsclubpodcast dot com, and send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com, and I'm at letterboxed at instant gym. Um, and Twitter at Instant Gym, although I'm not tweeting as much. So, yeah, stay tuned because. Um, I do have some interview episodes coming. Hopefully, they'll be short and sweet, I, I imagine. But, uh, yeah, the next official director-centric episodes will be uh, first week of October and then uh, in time for Halloween. So that's going to be great. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Hello, hello everybody. Um, it's time for another edition of the Directors Club Podcast. This is episode 95. My name is Jim Laskowski. Cool, huh? And I am stoked beyond belief to welcome back to the show one of my favorite people to talk movies with. He's a voice you've probably heard more than any other Oh, <laughs> my